Hello again, friends! And you are our friends, and welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's Drive-Thru right here on another fine summer's day in 2023. I'm your host, the great Brian Last. We have questions, and then maybe a review or two, but questions and so much more fun galore with this man, the star of the drive-thru, Mr. Jim Cornette. Fun galore. He was the nephew of famed Bond villainous pussy galore. Did you know that? I, I Were you aware of that? I was not aware of their uh, family tree, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, on, on his mother's side. Ah. Um, and, you know, Brian, we got a big problem here. I've just noticed this just here shortly ago, and... Uh, before we go any further with the program, we've got to uh, we got to determine what's going on here because this could be the end of the road for me in podcasting. I may be giving it up. I may be I'm I'm maybe forced out by medical reasons. I am afeard that the headphones that I am wearing when we produce these fine audio masterpieces are giving me a goddamn bald spot on the top of my head. You think it's the headphones, really? It's got to be. Because, uh, think about that. I just accidentally bent over in my bathroom at, at the angle of such of which, because I got a, kind of a wall of mirrors there, and there's a reflection situation where you can see around the corner. It's very complicated. It was It was done by technicians from NASA. But anyway, I bent over at the right angle where I could see that there's not as much hair on the top of my head as there used to be. And I'm saying, how long have we been doing this podcast now? Uh, since we've been doing it since 2016, but you were doing it for three years before that. And well, then... but no, but you got me the upgraded equipment yeah. and the, and the, and the, and the nicer microphone and the bigger and the heavier and apparently the poisonous headset that I've been wearing. It's not poisonous. Don't say that. Well, it's, it's causing my hair to die. You have no evidence of that. You're just assuming because no, your hair because is jumping look, out of your head that it's because of the headphones. No, no. Uh, so you're saying my hair just decided to commit Harry Carey. You're getting to that age where the hair says no, goodbye. No, 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 no. It, I find it awfully funny, awfully coinkadinkle, young Brian Last, that in the seven years that I've been dealing with you in this enterprise and I've been wearing this apparatus on my head and it goes right over the place where suddenly there's no hair there anymore in only seven years. How could something happen just overnight like that? How come I'm not having this problem? You know what? I've never actually seen a picture of you wearing these goddamn things that you sent me. You said, oh, here's the kind I use. You could have been leading me down the primrose path. You could be, you could have some of the Raycon wireless earbuds stuck in your in your jowls now. In my jowls, really? Well, the the ear holes are right next to the jowls. Even everybody says you're fat. I'm going to perpetuate that. <laughs> well, Every listen. time I've seen you in person, I've gone, well, that's a slim and trim, athletic young man there. But everybody no, thinks you're fat, so I'm going to go along with it. I am big and fat, and I live oh. in my parents' basement, and I just love boogers. I love my boogers. <laughs> no, I uh, I don't know even know what we're talking about. What are we talking I'm, about? I'm talking about you've 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 driven me bald is what you've done. That, which is completely a not true. Now it's me. We're blaming the headphones. Now you're blaming me. It's completely not true. And again, I'm not going bald. I have a nice big full head of hair, and I'm 43. 
<laughs> I didn't ask how old you were. I've seen bald people that were 36. And I've seen people with full Look heads of Vern hair. Look at Vern Gagne. He lost his hair when he was in grade school. I'm assuming I'm going to have less hair probably on my dome by the time I'm your age. Well, yeah. If you start wearing these headphones, I guarantee you, you will. I'm just saying You can't that guarantee I, it. Don't say you guarantee, because then that well, Stephen Pinu, Stephen Pinu. I've got the empirical evidence right here. I've been wearing <laughs> these headphones for seven years, and in that seven years, yeah, all the hair has disappeared off the spot that it goes right across off the top of my head. I, I rest my case. I'm just a small town bird lawyer. I'm not to the new level, but <laughs> boy howdy, case closed. No, not case closed. Case nowhere near closed. <laughs> you can open the case if you want on appeal. It's wide you know? open. It's wide open. Well, so is the top of my head. What else have you done in these last seven or eight years that's different? Oh, well, there's the neck bridges I do every day where, you know, I've got the top of my head on the canvas and I'm scratching it around. Listen, the last seven or eight years. What else happens on the top of my head? The last seven or eight years, you've been traveling less. You've been in your car less. Maybe it's because now you have that fresh Louisville air. Your hair is just saying, I can't deal with this. Oh, no. Just because Louisville has air that you wear doesn't mean that it affects your hair. Au contraire, mon frere. Well, I'll take you and your word for it, then. <laughs> Why do we do this? Oh. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so you've caused me to go bald now. No, I did not. I've got some updates. That's not an update. I've got... Uh, we've talked about some things on programs. I just... I know this is your show, but I just want to... Want to pitch it in here for public discussion. Some updates or some follow-ups on some things we've talked about on a variety of our programs. And and if the folks out there are not listening to both programs, then you're you're missing out because these things, it's not like collision and dynamite, where never the twain shall meet and people are not welcome from the other side. No, on on the experience and the drive-through, we just cross-promote the fuck out of this. So we mentioned on one of the programs recently, we were talking about the official greeting of the Cult of Cornet Fan Fest watchers, or as we've now, you know, we, we, we determined uh, the, the, that we were going to call them the Cult of Cornet, what was it? Um, I'm wrestling Integrity Watchers, the Cockwoo. <laughs> but then, unfortunately, <laughs> well, Nick Barrett, he's the sergeant at arms of this whole it's his fucking fault. organization. He really didn't want to be a cockwoo. <laughs> so, so we're working on the, the exact name of the overall organization, but somebody tweeted me and I don't, this is so simple. I don't know why we didn't think of it. The, the, the rank and file members of the organization. Why don't we just call them the corny colonels? Yeah. Oh, come on. So sounds too weak. The corny kernels. I think cornet is strong. Corny is kind of like, hey, hey, let's go play in the field. <laughs> I, I used to have a lot of fun playing in the field you when see? I was a kid. When you were a kid, you see what kids, I mean? Kids ought to play in more fields. <laughs> All right, we'll work on that too. But uh, hold on, <laughs> let me just scratch that. Corny kernels. Nope, didn't make the cut. But we're we're Nick, we're not going to do cockwoo just for your behalf. You know what someone uh, recommended I saw? I think it was on Twitter. 
the greeting should be thank you for Cuba. Well, I really, I like to where as we were spitballing, we were just workshopping <laughs> all of the, uh, all of the various ideas we were having. I like what we got to where if somebody says, thank you, then you immediately hold your middle finger up and say, <laughs> fuck you. Them. And if they in turn put their middle finger around yours and say, bye, then you know, they're part of, part of the club. It's such a bad <laughs> idea. They're going to put their hand around your throat. If you do that just, to someone. Just tickled the shit out of me. Or as, as Mama Cornette used to say, it just shickled the tit out of me. Hey, what's happening on the other side of the arena? Oh, that cock woo just middle <laughs> fingered that fucking fan. <laughs> and you'd hear, you'd hear in the distance some voice yelling, Conan! You, you hear that, but then you'd also hear, you know, everyone trying to get together. Ho! 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 The battle cry. We've established the battle, battle cry is ho! The bottle cry, maybe the bottle cry too. Uh, depend on what's in your bottle. Speaking of what's in your bottle, this is a perfect transition to Plumber Moxley, who we had discussion here recently that he won the big amateur national worldwide county cross country invitational no gi certain age group certain weight group tournament up there in in Cincinnati for the uh, the jiu-jitsu, wasn't it? Or was it no, grappling or what? I mean, it was almost close to some of it. And we actually heard from a ton of people about this, including wrestlers in the business who actually got in touch with us about it. It's NAGA, N-A-G-A, NAGA. It was their Cincinnati event. Because I guess it goes on tour around the country to your area and facilities with action. Yes, but did you hear the statistic that now that tickled the shit out of me and, and I'm going to relate here? I don't know. The tournament that Moxley won, because we, we talked about they had different divisions and we were trying to find a list of the people in that division. And except for the final match, we couldn't, where he Moxley beat the other guy, we couldn't really find out any more information. <laughs> Reason why is because in that specific grouping, Age, weight, gi, no gi, whatever all those specifications were. They were the only two in a tournament. They were the only two in the division. That match was the entire division. Moxley (laughs) beat the other guy. That was the start and finish sum total of the tournament. We were told he won a tournament. Yes, and that was it. It was just the finals? There was only two guys in the division, (laughs) so they had a fucking match. Now, I'm not not trying to downplay... (laughs) The magnitude of that he he beat the other guy in whatever the rules of whatever the fuck this is. I don't know. If we're, we're screwdrivers legal. I don't know if he had a professional advantage. First blood match. Ooh, I lost. But at least we know he didn't choke out a bunch of six-year-olds, as we were speculating on. <laughs> but he beat one guy. The, the entire tournament came and went in the one four-minute skirmish that they had to determine the winner of that division because they was it i won a gold medal badass poor thing the other guy won a bronze (laughs) it was terrible he got shortchanged somehow ridiculous anyway um did you see what's trending on twitter i don't know what you're up to now no okay (laughs) trending on twitter is the, the I get phrase I guess or name or whatever, the Rock Obama. 
And I don't know exactly how this got started, but when I saw I clicked on the thing, and there are literally thousands and thousands of people making jokes about this picture where I don't know if it's a computer-generated mashup, because remember I've said from the start of when we first saw fucking Barack Obama run for president, I said, well, goddamn, Rock's going to play him in the movies. They facially, especially at one point in their lives, Obama, the presidency aged him, and and the the, the Rock has, has has changed his look a little bit, but they look remarkably similar. But it may be a CGI mashup or whatever. But there's a picture where you could make a case that it's either fucking guy and somebody said, "Oh, who is that? That's the Rock Obama." And now it's trending just because people are talking about it. Wasn't that the so, skit they did on SNL when The Rock hosted well, it? Yeah, and that's, a, that's another picture they had put up with the SNL thing. Yes, he played Obama on SNL. And, you know, other people were making making jolly of that. But one of our own, from our own little humble business of humble beginnings, is now being compared with the most famous man on earth, The Rock Obama. Who do you think put that out? You think it was one of Dwayne's people that got that out there? <laughs> Looking for some attention to get off all the negative stuff? Well, now, come on. He, it, hey, it, it, he didn't have plastic surgery to look like... Yes, you did. know, that, that, that would have been the angle that... Uh, if, if it had been up to Hogan, if Hogan was booking a thing, he would have said, yeah, look, The Rock, you can have plastic surgery to look like Barack Obama. Did you ever see that Liberace movie that they did with Michael Douglas and Matt Damon on HBO and Liberace had his yes. lover get plastic surgery to look like him? Yes, yes, I saw that. And that was one of those things where when you watched it, you said a lot of this has to be true and defensible because elsewise they couldn't get away with it. Well, he was dead. I don't know who was left for the Liberace estate. That well, I mean, <laughs> hey, I'll tell you what. If Liberace had had the thought of leaving a goddamn living legal will, here's who is going to defend my name until the end of time and written in somebody like Stephen P. New there, that shit wouldn't fly. That's, you know, that's what we got to do, Brian, you and me. What's that? We have got to leave specific directions and instructions and paperwork there after we're gone, so people cannot malign us and or merchandise our names and likenesses and reputations, we have to have Stephen P. New and all of his legal heirs and progeny defending that in court until at least the year 2300. Keep renewing all of our copyrights. What do you think? Until 2300. I mean, we'd have to see how much of that falls within existing law. Well, we'll get him to change it. Who? Who? Stephen changed the law. He, he, that's not what a law, lawyers can't just change the law. They could defend you. Well, in the court he can of law. find somebody that can change the law, and then well, he is in West Virginia. Work his goddamn legal magic on that guy and say, "Hey, awful nice setup you got here. Be a shame if anything happened to it. Why don't you just change that law?" You brought up Liberace before. Liberace, of course, was the guest timekeeper at WrestleMania. And if you ever want to see a weird thing, I mean, it's a it's a cool moment because of who Liberace was, and this is the end of his life and the end of his career. But they have him in the ring with the Rockettes, like they're all doing the kicks. <laughs> the crowd is just not reacting. Yeah, like there's music being played and a couple of like old men around ringside 
whoever they are, like the officials, they're like clapping, like, yeah, it's yeah, Liberace! The, the people that remember poor old Lib. Yeah, no one's booing, but no one's like, all right, yeah, like no one. But um, they just put out, uh, it's, I don't know if it's shipped yet, but Mattel Creations put out a Muhammad Ali figure. It's a two-pack. One of the figures is Ali from the Ali and Noki match, and the other one is Ali from being the guest referee. That night at WrestleMania one. And well, well, where's Liberace in there? I'm waiting for the Liberace figure so I can reenact the whole yeah. scene. Yeah. And the city Lauper. If he'd have had somebody in charge of this stuff, we'd have Liberace fucking figures, Liberace marital aids, all that kind of stuff right in our own home. But I could just do like a custom figure. I could just take like the robe off the old AWA Ric Flair and that could be the Liberace robe. <laughs> you know, just take a figure that looks crazy like one of the Dick Tracy figures and that could be Liberace coming to the ring. And Well, did they ever make an action figure of Conway Twitty? You could just kind of... I don't think so. But who knows? Sparkle him up a little bit. Conway Twitty, really? So what, uh, by the way, what is the deal with Twitter? Is no longer Twitter, is now X? Well, I believe it's still named Twitter. It's just Elon Musk, for reasons that make sense to him, has decided to change the official logo, the insignia, to an X. What does that have to do with a tweet, or a Twitter, or the bird? Absolutely nothing. Why would that in any way remind you or bring to mind the, the brand of Twitter when you would see that X somewhere? Let me look it up. Why did... Elon Musk. Well, there's a lot of things. Why did he buy Twitter is the first thing. Why did he change the logo? <laughs> Musk tweeted Sunday that the idea of changing the logo to X was to, quote, embody the imperfections in us all that make us unique. And here's another what quote. What the fuck does that mean? And another quote. And soon we shall bid adieu to the Twitter brand and gradually all the birds. It's like Kenny Omega wrote this. Well, you know, I, I'm thinking that maybe it's a collaboration between the two of them because it sounds like something he'd say, but what is this fucking guy nattering about? I don't understand. Again, he bought, he bought Twitter for a value that was insane, and he, got stu- he tried to get out of it. He got stuck having to do it. He now owns it, and there have been just a series of puzzling decisions ever since he took it over. He's driven people off, it appears. Did they... Uh, you know, took away everyone's blue check marks. Now you have to buy them. If you buy them, you get to write more than the allotted amount of things. And now, of course, the rebranding to X. So I don't even understand his explanation for this, but I agree that he is, he's imperfect, at least. We know that much. But is this going to be like when, you know, when they killed Brian Griffin on Family Guy just so they could bring him back and everybody be relieved, is it going to go back to normal? New Coke? New Coke. That's what I and wondered. And suddenly the bird will pop back. But because uh, I was, if they're going to change the name, who's, oh, I, I was reading on X lately. What? Instead of tweeted, do you say I X'd Jim Cornette a question? And well, and then, you know, Charlie Manson would say, I've X'd you out of my world. But so I, I don't think that's going to have the same flow off the tongue as I tweeted on Twitter. What'd you think of one of Manson's girls finally getting out? Oh, she, you know what? Th- that was a, a nice thing because she's obviously the repentant one. She's been level-headed and reasonable in all of her 
jailhouse interviews for years now, right? And she studied and had good behavior and that whole nine yards. A good old Leslie Van Houten. She, you know, she was the good one. Good old. Oh, yeah. She was great. She only, uh, you know, helped with everything. Well, you know, but there's there's something to be said for contrition. So I'm glad to, you know, to see she gets another chance. Give that Charles Manson credit when he was alive, whenever he had those parole hearings and you, they aired them on TV, thankfully, because they were insane. Yeah. He didn't even try. It was just like, all right, every four <laughs> years I get a chance to tell all these people the craziest shit they've ever heard, and then they'll send me back. <laughs> or he would insist that he's not on uh, the inside. He's already on the outside. They're on the inside. <laughs> I'm just a product of you. You have made me what I am, and I'm a reflection of your society. <laughs> what a wrestling promo that would have been. A little Weasley manager like that. Anyway, um, speaking of weasels on Twitter, again, Brad, I didn't trend or anything, but it's just, it's amazing. The level of vehemence that I can elicit with a wag of my finger or a flick of my eyebrow or whatever these small gestures are. Uh, what was it that uh, Stephen Colbert was doing? A tip of the hat, wave of the finger, or whatever the fuck. And so somebody X'd or tweeted or sent out a clip of the new AEW video game, Fight Forever, or some people calling it Take Forever, or you know whatever the case. And they were saying, you know, here I paid, and I guess with tax and possibly if it was through the mail, you know, delivery charge, I paid like $80 for this. And it was a screenshot, and you've seen it. You'll probably describe it better than I do here in a minute. But just to my, what I first saw to my limited understanding, it looked like referee Aubrey Ed was refereeing a match between her and someone else because the other wrestler looked just like Aubrey Ed. And they were circling around. They were circling around attempting to grapple each other in the way that video games do. And suddenly one of them got stuck in the mat. I'm not talking about stuck on the mat. I'm talking about st sank through the surface of the mat and was <laughs> swinging helplessly <laughs> from being waist deep in the mat like it was in a quicksand fucking pit. And so I retweeted saying, hey, somebody help an old guy. Because I don't know what it's supposed to look like, really, legitimately. I don't have any idea what a wrestling video game is supposed to look like. So as it help an old guy out, is it supposed to look like this? And a bunch of people said, no, no, it's a glitch. And, <laughs> you know, this causes, cause some were quite smart. It's caused by this or not enough attention to that, or they'll have to put a patch or fix or whatever. But there was the other side that were like, my God, the AEW fans were like, I had called their mother a whore and tried to poison their dog. You mother for God damn you. Yes, all games have glitches. Oh, come Every on. single one of them. All games have glitches. It's called video games, you old son of a bitch. You're ready to turn into dust because you should die. Because you, what do you know about the goddamn you? Just ridiculously over the top because I'm laughing at this fucking 
funny fu- and then they would send out the WWF has glitches too fine I don't give a shit does anybody get stuck in quicksand in their ring uh, but uh, no a bunch of people were joking about it and talking about how the the money they've spent they obviously are letting it out before it's time or they're gonna have to have a patch or just commenting on it or whatever but the the real faithful base were like not only insulted but and offended, but goddamn violently angry that I would retweet a clip of their fucking video game with the wrestler getting stuck in the fucking map. What was going on there, Brian? You saw it. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously not how games are supposed to work. I'll admit you tweeted out that thing and I saw it and I laughed uproariously, not just because of Aubrey Edwards sinking into the ring, not even sinking, just jumping off the top rope it's like the ring's not even there it's just whoop right under the ring but half her body came above the ring and she's still kind of fighting which led to a very interesting moment at the very very end as the referee was counting her out because obviously if you're under the ring you're outside the ring that's a count (laughs) so the referee which is herself is counting her out and at the very end she gets a hold of whoever her opponent is and throws him over the top rope but it was just a split second too late I don't know why that happened. I think the problem is this. Everyone, everyone who's willing to be honest, and I think everyone who's not to themselves that knows that this game was released before it was ready for public consumption. And they're trying to make money back from it right away. They say there'll be plugins, there'll be fixes, but it wasn't ready. And it's out there now. So people could defend it. If the defense is, it's not ready, other games are like this too. I don't know if that's a great defense. It's not yeah, ready. That, that that was the biggest comment. Well, all games have glitches. That's part of games or something to that effect. It is No, little- but we're we're hearing from a lot of people who spent whatever, $60, $65 on this game who are saying that it's glitch heavy. That's the mm-hmm. difference. So it can be glitch light and that can still be acceptable, palatable, you can get by with it, but glitch heavy, well, that's just, that's fat. And there are all sorts of glitches. I remember when I was a kid, we actually had a Donkey Kong uh, machine in the house, like one of the tabletop ones you could sit at. And if you went to the end of the second level and jumped off the level, like almost like you were going to die, you would actually sink to the bottom and then come out through the top and go all the way to the bottom again and beat the level. The weirdest glitch ever. Glitches happen. uh... That confused me, but I, because well, see, I never had Donkey Kong. My, my mom was, you know, she was careful with a dollar and she got me the, the, you know, generic version, Dumbo does it donkey style. That was the game I used to play. That was the generic version of Donkey Kong and your mother bought you that game. Yes. Where yeah. did she buy that game? Where was that on sale? It was at the flea market. The flea this market. nice, this nice man in the trunk of his car had a bunch of stuff like that. And she saw that it was Dumbo does it donkey style. Was that what it was? Dumbo does yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, it was a heck of a game, but. How do you win that game? Well, you get away. <laughs> <laughs> Who's you? Who is the player? In the, who do you play as in the game? No, no, I wasn't playing anybody. It was me. I got away. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, it's your show. No, you can't do that right now like that. That's unfair. <laughs> That's really unfair. Well, you know, there is somebody we've been talking about in the news lately that ain't going to get away with it. Well, that's right. And of course, you're speaking about Colin Thompson of Cast Media, who owes us 
and many, many other shows, and it's turning into a bigger story than I thought, a lot of money since we last, well, I guess we should do an update here. Well, yeah, and, and, and by the way, the, the clip is right now on, on our YouTube channel. If, you, if anybody wants to get refreshed on Colin Thompson of Cast Media, who thought he was going to get away unscathed with Owen, not only us a significant amount of money, but now we've come to find out all kinds of people significant amounts of money. And we've gotten some more clarity on not only the people that he's been ripping off, but also the way, apparently, that he's been spending people's money. Well, since the show came out, since the clip came out, we've heard from a lot of podcasters or podcast creators, producers, people who are in somewhat of a similar boat to us. Again, we were in a situation where he owes us a bunch of money, but we're free and clear. I don't know if we'll ever recoup any of it, but he doesn't own anything. We're good to go, do whatever we want. Not everyone's in that position. And also, sadly, there are people who are in a position where the money their podcast makes is literally the money that they use to feed their family. And it's the money they use to take care of sick relatives. And you feel awful when you start hearing from this, and we're all in the same boat. And it's a lot of big shows who have not spoken out yet. Hopefully they do. But we've kind of started something, and as I said, we've heard from other shows. There was a report in Pod News, which is the industry's leading daily free newsletter that everyone in the business gets in their email. Check it out. There's a free plug for you. And by the way, they read it also on their YouTube channel. And that that British announcer has such a wonderful... Every time he said our names, we sounded nicer. Well, you and these accents, I believe he's from Australia. Well, we're, we're somewhere in that neck of the woods. Well, he did an article talking about the segment we did on the show. And again, that segment was legally cleared, backed up by documentation. And he mentioned in this article, he's also heard, there's been rumors going around about other things happening with cast, but no one's been willing to speak out. Everyone's either afraid or still hoping against hope that they're going to get a little bit of their money back. And this is the most interesting thing in this article. He reached out to Colin Thompson, who, according to what we're hearing from people, because the only social media he apparently is active on is his Instagram, which is now private. And I probably have a good idea why. He's been living it up and having a good time with his wife in Las Vegas. Also, we understand maybe taking some international vacations, jetting around the world. We've heard from people who say Colin's been doing these vacations with his wife, and a lot of people don't think highly of her. They say she's never worked a day in her life. Uh, some people use wife in quotes, which is interesting. And the other thing we started hearing from people about is that apparently he's been bragging about a $2 million custom home. Not a home he's purchasing, but apparently, allegedly, a custom-built $2 million home. I hope he at least names a urinal after me in there, because some of that well, money... Well, but maybe, uh, actually, there may be a, a transition of the deed now that we know that it, unless he's conned the real estate people also, we don't know if he actually owns it. He may be living in it, but uh, if that's an asset that can be attached in litigation. Well, he's expecting that, so he's hoping to rely on the homestead protections from California, so we're going to have to see what we could do about that. But anyway, he was reached out to by the editor of Pod News, and here's what it says in this report. Colin Thompson, the CEO of Cast Media, 
emailed us a link to a guide on U.S. libel law. He later denied that this email was meant as a threat, telling us, was curious myself. I didn't know. Looked it up. So he's now trying to threaten the journalists, this fucking sociopath weirdo. Hey, now don't you go around giving sociopathic weirdos bad names by comparing them to Colin the Weasel. The Weasel! He's not Pauly Shore now, he's Colin Thompson. So basically, now we have found out that there are people that have been doing programs that he owes more money to than he does us. We've also found out that there are other people that he owes less money than he owes us, but these are people that are using it to feed their families. As you said, there's one person, as you mentioned, that we've heard of so far, could be more, with family members with medical issues. And they're either tied contractually, their podcast has been partially owned, or they're in some way not only still trying to see if they can get any of their money, but their their programs are being screwed up with this, all because of this guy and the fact that he collected this money and then never gave it to where it was supposed to go. He put it back in his losing business. The other interesting thing as we are recording, and I don't know where this is coming from as of this point, I'll be honest. We've heard from a lot of people, but no one has said that they're behind this. A press release went out yesterday. Talent and managers speak out against cast media's acquisition by Live One, highlighting unpaid dues and exploitative practices. Frustrated talent and their managers have joined forces to shed light on the controversial acquisition of cast media by Live One, parent company of Podcast One. This collaboration aims to bring attention to the ongoing issues surrounding unpaid talent and exploitative practices within Cast Media. Colin Thompson, the CEO and owner of Cast Media, has come under scrutiny for his failure to compensate the majority of talent, with some individuals reporting non-payment dating back to 2021. (sighs) The talent, who have dedicated their time and efforts to producing quality content, have been left without the compensation they rightfully deserve. Jim Cornette spoke about his experience on a recent podcast. Colin Thompson owes over $5 million to talent. Now, that's the first time we had heard that. In addition to the non-payment allegations, Cast Media faces multiple lawsuits filed by talent managers and former employees. These legal actions highlight further concerns, such as the denial of overtime pay and the denial of basic employment benefits like lunch breaks. (laughs) It is deeply troubling to witness an environment where employees' rights and well-being are disregarded. And again, just like I said before, that's the first time we had heard that. He doesn't let them have lunch breaks? He's cracking the whip over there. I'm sure he's not paying them well, so they don't get paid well and they don't get lunch breaks? Sounds like a great boss. I continue. Live One, the company acquiring, uh, acquiring by Cast Media, whoever wrote this wrote this wrong, the company acquiring Cast Media has contributed to the distressing situation by offering unfavorable contract terms to talent. With a revenue split of 60-40, 
talent finds themselves on the receiving end of an unfair deal compared to other industry standards. Furthermore, the lack of production support provided by Live One adds to the disservice faced by talent, putting them at a significant disadvantage within the industry. We rejected any conversation with them. We never never even got to that point. Yeah, we never even got an offer to begin with because we we held up the finger before that. But now they're trying to 60-40. Hmm? Hmm? 60-40. Can you, if, if anyone in podcasting has a 60-40 deal, get out of it. Sue, do whatever you got to do. You're getting screwed. The compensation practices exhibited by Cast Media and Live One are far from satisfactory. <laughs> Rather than fulfilling their financial obligations to talent, the companies offer only a minimal upfront payment accompanied by an equal amount dispersed over a two-year period. The remaining owed compensation is unjustly issued in the form of stock options in a newly formed company involving Colin Thompson (laughs) and And Live One. And that's the offer that we got that we said, are you out of your fucking mind? Once again, Stock options in a newly formed company involving Colin Thompson and Live One. Maybe. This approach, <laughs> this approach not only disregards talent's rightful earnings, but also leaves them feeling coerced and undervalued. One anonymous talent shared their experience, and by the way, for the record, this is not Jim or I, stating, it's been frustrating, as we see Colin not paying anyone And at the same time, he is posting photos on social media about his custom multi-million dollar home he's built in Calabasas or lavish vacations in other countries. Wasn't there a famous leaping frog from there? No, you're thinking of the Kardashians. Uh It seems like he's been embezzling the ad revenue owed to us for personal gain and has no intent to really pay us what is owed. The talent and their managers and the gardeners you hear behind me (laughs) are united in their stance against these exploitative practices. They demand transparency, fair treatment, and proper compensation for their hard work and dedication. It is essential for Cast Media and Live One to acknowledge the severity of the situation and take immediate action to rectify the injustices inflicted upon talent that is a press release went out yesterday we don't know where it came from so if you are behind that reach out corny drive through gmail.com or brian at arcadianvanguard.com well and see here's the thing is that as we mentioned we got off apparently pretty easy compared to a lot of other people because we didn't specifically because we you smelled something of this nature we weren't under written contract we were on an agreement where without a 60-40 split, we'd never agreed to that. Oh my God, no. Good Can Lord. you imagine? 60-40? And yeah, but this weasel had no ownership in our program, and we were able to extricate ourselves fairly quickly over the fucking 4th of July weekend and get everything where it's supposed to be. But a lot of people are not coming out by name yet because they're still in the middle of contracts and or issues where they need the money, and they want to say fuck you, but they they need to see if they're going to get something or whatever the case, but we're also We've heard they're still still dangling the settlement offers to people, from what we hear. But they're also starting to 
come up now that we've broken the logjam a little bit because these are not wrestling podcasters, folks. Also, these are people doing podcasts in other lines of entertainment or hobbies or endeavors or whatever that might be doing this again, as Brian has said, for their they put work into it to try to make this go and this is their employment. And this guy is is fucking flittering about with his beard, I mean his wife, and squandering their money that they expected to feed their kids. And unfortunately, he happened to be dealing with the wrestling folks where it's not really a big deal to us if somebody says, I'll have my attorney call you and sue you and do this. And well, good, good. Join the fucking club. We've been hearing that for 40 fucking years, motherfucker. And it's actually legitimately happened before for people that I beat over the fucking head with a blunt instrument. And I'm still here. So you think you're going to sue me for running my fucking yap? Fuck you. And I come from the music industry. And I'm a fan of punk rock. I know how to fucking protect my content from fucking weasels trying to hone in on it. Oh, I thought you were going to say it. I know how to kick you down the street in the Bowery when you went to the punk rock thing. I thought you were going to physically intimidate him with you wearing a fucking leather jacket and a fucking no, well, no, I and never, a goddamn spikes. And a, I was never the come out dressing and, up like it. I dressed the way I did, and I would walk down the Bowery yeah. to the Bowery Ballroom or wherever and have a good time. No one really fucked with me. Uh, but you weren't dressed wearing the whole gimmick. No, I was dressed... You were undercover. Probably in a polo shirt. No, I wasn't dressed undercover. I was dressed like myself. Well, you went. You, you got to be, if you're wearing a polo shirt to a fucking punk rock club, you got to be undercover something. I have been to more punk rock clubs than you could even, like, you've never been to one. Have you ever been I've to never, one? No, I've never been to a, no. Well, wait a minute. Did they do them at Shotgun Saturday night? Were any of those punk no, rock clubs? No. All right. Well, then I've not been. But let's get... Let's get back to the Weasel Club, of which the sole member is Colin Thompson. That's right. So basically, we're going to keep everybody up to date on it, but we have apparently broken a, a little news by actually coming out and saying his fucking guy's name and company and what he did and what he's trying to pull, and that is now encouraging other folks to... We've had a couple people say, hey, we'll join your lawsuit. And we're taking that information down and for future use. Yeah, and if you're a content creator out there, even some of the wrestling content creators, even some of the people that don't like us, there's no reason to have people that have nothing to do with the creative energy of your show, have nothing to do with the production of your show. There's no reason for any of these people to have any piece of your content. You're the artist. You're creating the shit. These people should just do their job and find ways to help you and supplement what you're doing and compliment what you're doing, I guess I should say. But there's a lot of weasels out there who try to take advantage of people that don't know what to look for. Well, and what we're also finding out, allegedly, allegedly, the alleged weasel, he was trying yeah, to... he's a weasel. Him. I've dealt with well, him. He's a weasel. Okay, okay, but I'm just saying, for the purposes of the, the courtroom tran transmission, uh, he was padding the numbers, that he was padding his company with our numbers, he was trying to keep us happy so that he could claim our numbers even though he had no ownership or any other involvement in our show. We, it was just an advertising deal between they and us. But that way he got credit for our numbers in this scheme that he was trying to pull off to build this thing up on paper and obviously not government-issued paper, but on paper and then sell it to Podcast One or Live One or 
whoever the one is. We ain't the ones. No. How long was Live One talking to Colin? How much of this was a strategy that was developed as a way to coerce talent, strong arm talent into these bad deals? We thought it was a bad deal just based off the compensation repayment. We didn't even know about 60-40. Could you imagine if we had said, oh, you know what? We really need to recoup this, some of this money. I'm just so happy that we'll get some of this money that we work for. Let's have a talk with Podcast One. Maybe they're good guys. And then they said, it'll be 60-40? That would have been like trying to renegotiate the Midnight Express's contracts with Jim Hurd in 89. Really sad. Sad how many people this has affected. Again, reach out to us, cornydrivethrough at gmail.com or brian at arcadianvanguard.com. Or Colin Thompson on Twitter. Oh, yeah. He hasn't shut that down yet. I believe it's Colin P. Thompson. Uh, No P in the Thompson, but I think P is his middle name or middle initial. Yeah, well, we took the P out of him earlier, but I might have to put some back in. Look for Colin Thompson on Twitter and look for the one with the goofy hairdo that looks like Kip Sabian's weak brother. And that's the one. All right, it's your program. All right. Mr. Last. Well, speaking of uh, this program, let's talk about another program, and that's AEW Dynamite. Several people have been sending in stories. I hear noise behind me. I hope the listeners don't, but there's noise coming from somewhere. But... I can't hear any. I think it's the voices in your head, because every time you say that, the 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 listener, the cult of Cornette, they always say, we don't hear, hear any of this shit, and I never hear it. I don't know what's going on with your... Do you have some form of aggressive tinnitus? Wait, I'm hearing... What's the frequency, Kenneth? No. Ah, wh- that's the problem. Uh, people have been sending in questions about the news that Orange Cassidy is now an agent <laughs> for Tony Khan. <laughs> no, he's... Oh, see, they've, they've misinterpreted. They misinterpreted. Tony didn't make him an agent for the wrestling program. Tony made him a secret agent. Because that's the, the... See, they get together in Tony's mansion basement and play every week, he and Pockets. And last week, Pockets was a was a, a, a Air Force pilot. And the previous week, Tony was a fireman. And now they've decided that Pockets is going to be a double-knot spy. So he's a secret agent. Secret agent man. Secret agent man. They've given you a number and Tony's paying your way. Well, I have here, uh, this is from the Observer website by Ian Carey. I'm sure it is. Report, Orange Cassidy working as a producer slash agent in AEW. The 39-year-old made his pro debut in 2004. In addition... To his active in-ring schedule. Hey, you know, here's another thing. You, I, I, I will say one good thing about this miserable piece of human effluvia. You got to give him credit for persistence. If you started doing something in 2004, and for 15 fucking years, nobody knew who the fuck you were or gave a shit, you distinguished yourself at nothing in any mainstream way, in any high-profile activity in the profession that you had chosen to toil away at. And then finally, after 15 years, a billionaire that thinks you're cute and needs friends puts you on national television. It's the American dream. Go ahead. In addition to his active in-ring schedule, Orange Cassidy reportedly has a... How many days a week do they work? 
Uh, well, he works, I think, like one day a week. Yeah, it's active. In it's almost comatose. In addition to his active in-ring schedule, Ari, Ari. Imagine if your if your heart only beat once a fucking day. That goddamn rapid heartbeat. Orange Cassidy reportedly has a new role backstage in AEW as well. According to a report in Fightful Select, or from Fightful Select, the 39-year-old has picked up some additional work as a producer slash agent for the company. Cassidy is said to have produced the recent Big Bill and Brian Cage versus Matt Seidel and Trent Beretta match <laughs> on the July 7th Rampage. He also produced a recent Kingdom versus Infantry match in Ring of Honor. Of do what versus where? What now? It was the Kingdom versus the Infantry. God damn. So now I was at the mess hall. I was about to say, how are they just going to send the infantry against the whole kingdom? Don't they need the infantry and the fucking mounted soldiers to go against the whole entire assembled might of the kingdom of fucking Lilliput? What? Well, those classic barn burner matches that headlined WrestleMania have been the brain children or the brain sperm, possibly, of, of little pockets. On this topic, and obviously the role has somewhat changed from what it was, let's say, in the 80s, and those are really the first agents, as in you see veterans in the same suit every night, anytime you go to wrestling, on the road for the WWF. That was the beginning of the modern agent in a lot of ways. What makes a good agent nowadays because it seems like now it's really about working with or it should be about working with guys on their matches but what should be a good agent nowadays especially for AEW yeah well and we've talked about the agents started out in the WWF just when Vince had and it wasn't just for matches some of the agents Tony Gurria Dave Hebner they were there to check up at the box office and or to make sure that the merchandise got sold properly and all the financial dealings were done and other agents were there to not even i mean obviously they were always there for advice but they would just tell the matches on the card hey here's what the office sent they want 12 minutes they want the baby face over and they would watch the match and they would call in and give their Thoughts to, you know, the recording at the office that Finkel would then transcribe on whether the match was any good or not. So Vince would know. That kind of thing. And then as television got more, you know, more not only more important, but also more demanding in terms of it wasn't hard when they were all squash matches from every company to, you know, you didn't need an agent. Okay, I've got, you know, young Mike Moraldo. And uh, we're going to go four minutes and I'm going to win with my finish. So there wasn't any need to agent that type of thing. And then when we started doing main events on television, it was main event guys against main event guys. You knew what to do. Again, the booker would say, okay, this is an angle or in the middle of this, we're going to do whatever. He'd give you the framework. You go out and have the fucking match. But then live TV came in and then bigger production values. And now the truck has to be clued in on what's going on in the matches and especially when guys start doing dives because the worst goddamn thing that ever happened to wrestling television production was dives and shit because 
even though that the same, usually the same director and producer in the bigger companies are shooting the program every week, all of a sudden you can catch non-wrestling people unawares when the only indication you're going to do a dive is that you know the fucking spot in your head. You've seen him do it before. I bet he's going to dive. Yeah, you're going to dive. And the the cameras would miss it. The director would miss it. So then the agent slash producer became the guy that not only helped the talent with their match, not only gave them the finish or reinforced the finish to them, but the time they would have. And, you know, you got to watch this camera on your entrance and the truck wants you to do these type of things. And then they listen to that the match that these guys are going to have, that they're going over endlessly until every bit of spontaneity is wrung out of it. And then the uh, the producer agent will go back in the truck and they will sit there while that match is in the ring and they'll help feed the director. Now, be, be careful, he's about to do the big dive when so-and-so, you know, gets his fucking pie in the face, then the dive's coming or whatever, so that it's not shot off camera. And then, of course, guys still go into business for themselves and do screwy shit you never see coming. And you might miss that. That's why things get missed. But so it it's become almost like the the babysitter to where, you know, you not only hopefully have more experience than the talent that you're dealing with, so you can actually help coach them and, and say, no, I wouldn't hit 17 drop kicks in a row. I think three will work. Just pause then and see what you think or shit like that or help with spots that, that, that might fit these guys that they've never seen because they're not old enough. Hey, do this. Hey, that'd be fun. Change this around. And it could also be, you know, telling them, here's how we're going to shoot this. And here's where the break is going to come. So you need to have a break spot. You want to start the heat there? You know, now it's a big goddamn collaboration. And there's multiple things that all of which I've just mentioned that the the agent and producer is doing in between the television production crew and the folks in the truck and the guys in the ring. And that's what, you know, in, at TNA, the last time I was there in, what, 2012, full-time, not when I visited, uh, that was predominantly what I was doing over the last year was working in between the the guys with the matches and then in the truck because, you know, goddamn, at that point they had had 18 different authority figures, and I, you know, I was more valuable trying to carry that communication back and forth because I, I could speak both languages. From whatever you saw in '87 or. 88 and whatever you were involved with in 89 what goes into agenting or what went into back then agenting a war games match i we didn't there was no agent for the well no even when we did the war games in 89 we didn't have agents yet see vince started the agent thing we had dusty and and jj was his assistant and then when turner broadcasting took over fired dusty as booker you know, the revolving door of Booker's was J.J. was still an assistant, but he knew he was about to get out of there. 
Uh, Crockett was the booker. I don't even know if he had an assistant until they brought George Scott in, and that's when he was using... Um, Paul Jones got a little extra added office work at that point, and then Paul was kind of like an assistant booker. And George Scott's son, Byron, the referee, was his official stooge. But it... it the booker gave you the goddamn match, whether it was war games or whatever, and then the guys in the match worked it out. I don't remember. And then, well, and remember they brought Blackjack Mulligan in. George Scott did, because he was like, well, if, if nobody wants to do what I say, Blackjack will beat him up. And Blackjack was there for two weeks, and then fuck this, and went home. Uh, but there, there weren't really multiple agents. The agents under Turner Broadcasting at first were the the Chip Burnhams and the guys that went to the office and checked up and gave you your draw and stuff, and they were completely... They brought guys in, in some cases, that had worked in Turner Broadcasting as, you know, not executive, well, maybe executives, but just like regular office workers, and sent them on the road to check up at box offices, like they had suddenly joined the carnival, and they didn't know what the fuck was going on. You brought up Mike Moraldo earlier, better known as Ace Darling. Do you think he should have gotten a bigger chance on the main stage? Well, yes, I do. But now that I've heard that he's had a successful life and an actual real career and, you know, is is happy and content, I'm glad he didn't because wrestling might have fucked his life, life up too. Well, I don't know how his life is today, but if he's having any trouble sleeping or if he's having any aches and sores from his days in the ring... Maybe. Sores from his days in the ring. Aches and sores. Aches and pains, I guess, not aches and sores. Hopefully he's not sore. I'll tell you what, if you've got any sores on you from your days in the ring, you better get that shit checked out. Maybe he's sore. Maybe he himself is sore from his days in the ring. No sores, just an overall soreness. <laughs> and we can, of course, tell him a place to go where you can get some products to help him. Our friends at CB Distillery. Yes, we can. And now you've got leprosy. I don't know if they're treating that here these days. You know, Moraldo had that problem with that one time where he kept having fingers and toes fall off at random. What? But he's feeling much better now. That's good. Uh, but anyway, fo but folks, again, yes, if the stress, anxiety, pain after physical activity, whether it may be exercise of the on-purpose kind, or maybe you were just late and trying to run for a bus and you didn't mean to run down the street that fast, but God dang it, you pulled your fucking hamstring. Whatever the case may be, our friends at CB Distillery, cbdistillery.com, have the fine products that can help with all these because 90% of customers report better sleep with CBD. 81% say CBD helps with stress and anxiety. 80% report less pain after physical activity with CBD. And 7% report that it helps you with your focus and concentration. If you take enough of these things, you can actually levitate small household objects just by concentrating on them. No, you can't. And of course, you should only take the required, the recommended dosage. You should never just go crazy and do your own thing. Well, no, because then you'll run out of them and you'll have to buy more. And even though they are inexpensive for the value that you get, but it's a full range of carefully formulated CBD and other plant-based solutions there at CB Distillery. And they've got a variety of things that grow up out of the ground that can make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. 
they're going to chop up some swamp thing and send it on to you. And you just, <laughs> you eat it or you drink it or you. No, that's not, that's the, they're not going to chop up some swamp thing. Again, it's CBD with some, as you put it, I think plant-based ingredients. Yes. Plant-based. Solutions. No one said anything about swamp. Nothing will be These swamp things, based. Well, that's where, you know, things grow well out there in the, you know, the compost the pile. Have you ever smelled a good pile. Sm- uh, Have you ever smelled a good whiff of mulch? Yeah. That it promotes the growing of healing plant compounds and vital nutrients that well, these things are packed with at 100% clean ingredients. That's right. No, no mulch. No mulch. Well, no artificial flavors, no colors, artificial colors. There's some color. You'll see colors when you <laughs> <take> <laughs> There's no artificial You will coloring. see the regular colors you always see. I guarantee you that. They'll be brighter than ever. There's no artificial coloring. There's no artificial flavoring. It's real flavor. Boy, I'll tell you what, you'll never get this taste out of your mouth. And there's no artificial preservatives in this. So that means that you're only getting the, the healthy, natural things that grow out of the ground and come springing up. To the toward the sun and the sky when they get the nutrients from water and things and such. And scientists have have worked over these things. The scientists, they urinate on them every day to make no, them. That's grow. not what they do. The scientists that, that, they get they directly get the science in their bodies out into these plant-based products. That's not the way science works, or the, not the way scientists operate. And I I'm surprised you should know these things, but let me just point out, this is the real deal. This is the real product. These people put a lot of heart and soul and really want to put out a great product. This is not the crap you're going to find out at the gas station. Oh, no. This is no. the real deal. No, that gas station CBD won't do you any, any better than gas station smoked sausage used to back in the <laughs> Mid-South wrestling days. What? Yeah, the only place that I could eat, <laughs> the only place we could get any food Coming back from Little Rock, Arkansas to Alexandria, Louisiana, which was 275 miles of two-lane road from 11 o'clock at night to 5 o'clock in the morning, and everything was closed back in those days when we got out to eat in Little Rock on our way to the highway, the highway as they called it. So we would stop at the state line between Arkansas and Louisiana at a gas station that also sold live bait, ammunition, firearms, knives, fishing equipment, and they had a case of barbecued chicken and smoked sausage and gravy and mashed potatoes and all that stuff. And, and I'd get me a big old smoked sausage on a stick and I would dip it in their special gas station made barbecue sauce. Oh. And I'd eat that thing because that's well, the only thing I could eat. Well, perhaps, but it, perhaps none of that's in the stuff from no. CP Distillery. And perhaps someone at home is hearing all this and just having horrible nightmares about that kind of situation. CBD would be a wonderful thing to help you get a good night's sleep and not have to worry about this crap. That's true. And when you go to cbdistillery.com, they tell you about all of the different products they have. They sent us a sample pack. You got the gummies, you got the droplets, you got the all kinds of stuff. And Stacy, as a matter of fact, is we got that sample case last week. She's been asleep ever since. No, stop it. That's not even what, true. She was awake two, yesterday. In a, in a day or two, I'm going to fucking nudge her in the ribs just to make sure. But she's getting a good week's sleep. And you can too, no. folks. And it, no. If you're frustrated. What? No, no. You, you will get a good night's sleep, not a good week's sleep. Let's just clarify. Well, set your alarm just to be safe. 
If you're frustrated with a health concern that's not getting any better, you can try CBD also. From the source that we all trust, cbdistillery.com, there's no prescription required. You don't have to go visit a doctor. You just get your neighbor who can disguise their handwriting to write out a little note saying that you've recently undergone a complete hysterectomy and been in a major car wreck. What? And you send that in and they'll no. send you this stuff. That's not how it works, and do not send Oh, they send dropped in... that requirement? Hey, listen, uh, do not well, send... Well, now the doors are open, folks, and wide open. Well, good. here's a good idea for you, Carrie Von Eric. Don't write your own prescriptions. Well, no, no prescription is required, but a note used to be, you know, kind of the, the yeah. way you did that thing, and slip it under the door. Signed Epstein's mother, I know. Yeah, but anyway, so folks, again, the full range of carefully, caref carefully formulated yeah. or care-formally... Care Someone's been taking the sleep ones. Yes, and I haven't woken up yet. Carefully formulated CBD and other plant-based solutions, healing plant compounds, vital nutrients, clean ingredients, two million satisfied customers, and at least another three or four million that are, you know, still on the fence, but leaning toward the positive. And recommended by Mayo Clinic trained internist and preventive health specialist, Dr. Kevin Fry. He is a specialist at preventing health, and he can prevent your no, health. No, that's not too. what that means. That's not what that means. He will help you with health that will prevent other things from happening. Help! Help you with health. Maybe he can help will you prevent other things from happening. Preventative health. No, pre not preventative. Preventive. Preventive oh. health. He's a specialist at preventing health. Well, look, he's a fine guy. Check out his stuff. Yeah. He's a fine guy, is Fry. He's a Fry guy. He's a Fry guy. Let me get you folks on the right path with my 20% discount. Yeah, you'll be going down the garden path to the righteous <laughs> land with this one, folks. All you got to do is go to cbdistillery.com and enter the code JCE for your discount. CBDistillery, D-I-S-T-I-L-L-E-R-Y. Dot com, the promo code JCE, you're going to get 20% off whatever you would like to purchase from these fine people and sleep better and focus, concentrate. No levitation, though. I bent a spoon. No, you did not. I'm telling you. No, you're not telling me I had to. I had to stick it under my fucking heel and really pull up on it because I stared at it for 10 or 15 minutes. It didn't do shit, but I bent it. Anyway, enjoy better focus and concentration. CBDistillery.com. All right, Jim. Well, let's wake up and move on here with the show. Let's get some questions from the Cult of Cornet. This one sent in on Facebook, Jim, using the Cult of Cornet Facebook. Using. In the Cult of Cornet Facebook group. <laughs> Maybe he's using or us. Or using us for their own nefarious schemes. This was sent in by Nathan Steele. Oh, come on. Nobody's got a cool name like that, Nathan Steele. Well, here's Nathan's question. What was it like running OVW shows at Kentucky Kingdom? <laughs> the reported crowds for those shows suggest it was a hit with theme park patrons. As a theme park fanatic, I'd be thrilled to see this as a park event. As a follow-up to the above question, does Jim ride theme park rides or roller coasters? And after all of his tales of avoiding air travel, I'm sure I already know the answer. And he ended it with an aloha, so that's very nice. When we first put the Six Flags 
Kentucky Kingdom deal together, and I think it was 2001, whatever. They had us over there and said, oh, enjoy the park, go around for the day. And the, without going into granular detail, the weasel that I was with doing this said, oh, and Stace was with me and the weasel's wife said, oh, let's get on that. I said, I don't want to get on that. No, 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 it's not bad. It's not one of the ones that does whatever the fuck those bad ones do. No, this stays close to groundward. I get on this thing. Oh, God, they've got a picture of me. They, it's one of those ones as you're coming into the station at the end of it. They take a picture of you. And there's this guy and his wife and Stacy. They got their hands up and their smiles on their faces and the hair blowing in the wind. And I'm gripping the goddamn bar on my seat with my head turned <laughs> inward. With my, You can tell my teeth are gritted from 100 feet away. I had to walk it off. I was tense for three and a half minutes, every muscle in my body. I had to walk it off. I was a giant cramp. You know what? Before you Fuck that shit. Before you talk about OVW and Kentucky Kingdom yeah. and working with a theme park, I just saw the funniest photo of you. It's a screen cap of Camp Cornette. I think Camp Cornette because it's Vader, Owen, Davy Boy, I think Diana Hart. Everyone just kind of looks, you know, it, perfect in their role. Good. And you're at the end, like, making this grimace I've never seen you make before. <laughs> it's the funniest picture I've ever seen, and people have been tweeting it out. It's become a meme. Have you seen it? You know what I'm talking I, about? I'm not even sure I know what... <laughs> was it Was it backstage in the locker room? Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah, I think it's... Okay, you know what? It's. I think it's a freeze frame from an interview. Yeah, yeah. It's what they, okay, and then, yeah, I'm making the grimace because I was doing something. I was the one talking, and everybody else could stand there and pose, but... Back to Six Flags, Kentucky Kingdom, OVW. It, 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 yes, to answer one of the questions asked, it was somewhat of a hit with the theme park uh, customers, but this was the majority of the people that were at the matches came probably early to the park, but they came to see the matches. It wasn't like, well, for example, uh, you know, when you're doing some type of taping or some type of event at a theme park because you want a captive audience. This was regularly scheduled and advertised. And the reason why that Kentucky kingdom was getting their money, their money's worth off of this. I'll explain how it worked. So when Louisville gardens closed allegedly permanently, and they opened it a time or two after that, but it, it, when it closed, after our last dance event in 2001, for a couple of those events that were sponsored by Clear Channel Radio, we had sent some of the WWF talent, some of our top OVW guys to Six Flags to do a promotion out there with an autograph session. And they got a good crowd. So the Six Flags people started talking to us. Hey, the gardens is closed, but we've got this outdoor amphitheater that could be used for wrestling. And we started talking about having matches. And they ended up getting a package of, we would start, I think, Memorial Day or that weekend or thereabouts. And we would run every other Friday night uh, through the summertime until school started or late August, whatever the fucking cutoff point was. Maybe Labor Day. I don't know. And they would give us a set amount of money which was in mid five figures at the start to put these shows on in their amphitheater and promote them on our television. 
And the deal also was that the amusement park did season tickets and they sold them at all Kroger stores and they sold them at, uh, at different places around town. And we would start advertising at the end of January, first part of February, whatever, when the season tickets went on sale, you could get a season ticket for $29, right? But then four weeks later, it might go up to $39. And four weeks later, it goes up to four. So we're selling the early advance tickets. And that was what the park loved because we would advertise on our television to our fans, regular viewers, that you can get a season ticket and not only go to the park anytime you want, but you can see all eight of these or all 10 of these shows or how many there were going to be for $29 if you buy the fucking thing three months in advance or for 39 if you buy it two months in advance. And we ended up selling more season tickets to the park through our one promotion with them than I think any other thing they did put together, probably. So that was the fucking deal. And then all the people that came to the matches, many of them, not every time, you know, 10 times over the summer, but often they would come early and they'd go spend money and eat and do the other shit and blah, blah, blah. So it was real successful for the park. And then when we would only bring in one WWE name on top, as long as we had the one star on top, then the rest of them of the card was our local guys. And that's what we used as our big shows through the summer that we built the TVs around. So there was a big event to talk about instead of a pay-per-view. It was next Friday night at Six Flags. And I mean, sometimes we would have other WWE talent if they were in OVW rehabbing an injury or, you know, whatever the case, but and and Lawler would come up at least once or twice on the summer because he loved to go to the flea market at the fairgrounds next door and he'd sell his pictures and he'd buy shit for his collection and, and go home with a carload of shit and have made money for the weekend. But uh, that's what we did for... And then they increased it. I think after the first three years, they bumped our money up and we had a show every Friday night. And that was... Uh, you know, probably going to, and then we did a spring break show when they do a spring break week. Although that was a little fucking nippy. We had the first week of April outdoors in Louisville. Uh, that's the one flair came and worked for us uh, because it, he teamed with David. But then as all good things come to an end, the fucking park was negligent. I remember, I think you, I've told you this story. They cut this fucking girl's feet off. And as a result of that, it was closed for about five or six years. <laughs> and they just recently reopened a, a few seasons ago, right before the pandemic. So it, it's uh, been struggling ever since. But yeah, the girl with no feet closed Kentucky Kingdom. Beyond the financial aspect of it, did you think it was a good environment for a show or a bad environment for a show, for a wrestling event or a bad environment for a wrestling event? Well, I would have loved for it to have been indoors, to be honest with you, because, you know, the weather was a factor in whether you'd get a crowd or not, as, as much as, you know, who was on the card. Um, but uh, they, they would make the exception. John Cena, the time he came back, the people, it was, I think, 
close to 3,000 people. They waited in the fucking rain for him to come out, cut a promo, do the whole nine yards. Um, but I would have loved for it to be inside, but there was no, at that point with no Louisville Gardens, there was no interior building, interior building, that doesn't make sense. There was no indoor arena that we could put the amount of people that would come to see these shows in Louisville and especially get paid for them. So we had to take the outdoor route. Uh, but I liked it in terms of a training exercise because it was the big house show that, you know, the big regular bi-weekly old time territory house show that you put a big card in with stipulation matches built to it on television and then went and executed it. And that was a training situation for all the guys in OBW. And the preliminary guys learned how to work a good preliminary match and the main event guys were doing the angles and the finishes to try to get them to come back in two weeks. And that was a you know a big part of the trend. So we were getting paid to put those shows on that were instrumental in being able to teach the students how to work Big house show matches. So everything besides it being outside worked, but and also because it was a it it wasn't an arena shaped auditorium. It was it had seats around not even a horseshoe, but just kind of like a crescent moon area and then a stage on one side. So when we had the camera on the stage shooting across, it was so big that unless we got 2,000 people that didn't look impressive on television because there was a lot of people that would be in the floor seats because the, well, the floor, the open field was was so big, people wanted to get close to the ring. So we couldn't, it looked like Ned on television and the weather was an issue, but there were shows that were guaranteed profit and stuff that we could, you know, use to illustrate to the guys what was going on. and. You know, when we're drawing 1,500 people or 1,200 people, which was on an average night, not a good one and not a rotten one, you know, that was a, a good chance for them to be in front of a decent crowd of people. Jim, our next question from the Cult of Cornet Facebook group, and I apologize for any noise in the background. There are thunder, uh, let's say a thunderstorm, but there's no storm. It's just thunder. Thundercats? Unaffiliated thunder. You like thundercats, really? What I Because you've been blathering on about it ever since you found out it was on what overnights on me tv thundercats is it on overnight on me? what is what am i thinking oh thunderbirds <laughs> thundercats it's thunderbirds are you a you like. are you a fan of lion o or are you a more of a mumra kind of guy i was thinking it was the thunderbirds i don't know what the thundercats do well they're on the loose uh, but there's thunder in the background thunder over new jersey thunder and lightning oh yeah the feeling is frightening Oh, yeah. And so is the singing. But let's get our next question here, Jim. This was sent to the Cult of Cornet Facebook group by London Unwin. What? <laughs> what? Lon <laughs> London Unwin. U-N-W-I-N. London Unwin. When <laughs> he's, a, he's, he's one of the premier cockwoos. I'm sorry, London. When Jim talks about the great I'm tag sorry, teams, London. What the have you seen London's Undens? It was Unwin, not Undin. Undin? Unwin? Well, before this question's Undin. Unwind his undies. When Jim talks about the great tag teams of the Attitude Era, 
He seems to always focus on Edge and Christian and the Hardy Boys, but rarely goes into details about the Dudleys beyond them powerbombing Jillian Hall in OVW. <laughs> Where does Jim rank the Dudleys in the pantheon of great tag teams, and what does he think of their work overall? No, okay. It all on it. I have to give them some flowers now. No, the Dudleys, and maybe I've got the out of the uh, um, not not uh, uh, prejudice, but I see them as more of an ECW team. I've got them pigeonholed as EC. So when I'm talking about WWF teams, yes, Edge and Christian were put together primarily there, and the Hardys attained their fame there. But, uh, you know, the only thing I, t I told Bubba one time when we were in TNA, I said, you know, I'm not sure you should talk about being 23-time tag team champions. He said, why? I said, because it sounds fucking preposterous, right? That anybody could be, the t it's like Lawler won the Southern title 107 times or whatever. But they never said it. But they never, they never, you know, they said he's held the Southern title most of the last 10 years. Not that he had it 107 times. That means he lost it 106 or whatever. But no, they, they did work at a high level and on top in several different companies. And while I did have issue with at sometimes Bubba's psychology in, you know, doing the big move to anybody and everybody for the sake of, you know, doing the big move, you know, they were a good team and they got their shit over and Devon get the tables and the whole nine yards and Bubba, especially when he was bigger, he, he could work. He was one of those guys, not, I don't want to, I don't want to give him an Adrian Adonis physique. He'll find me and beat me up. But I'm saying for a bigger guy, he was doing shit like big boss, man. He was not a fucking bodybuilder, nor was he, you know, cosmetically pleasing in his day, but he could move around and do a lot of shit for a big guy. And then finally he went on the diet and dropped all that weight to become a single in TNA here several years ago. So no, I guess I don't, I, I shouldn't overlook them because for, for that era, what early to mid two thousands through the 2010 era, they were probably one of the top teams in the business. So we should give them more of their flowers. And just remember, Bubba, it wasn't my fault. You were in the goddamn electrified cage match because I shit on the fucking idea when I heard about it too. That was it. Remember that when they did that in TNA in St. Lake, tried again, like we already hadn't learned going back to the Thunderdome in WCW in 1989 or whatever. And they tried to do that electrified cage. I think it was in St. Louis with LAX and the Dudleys. And it didn't fucking work worth shit. And they just had to grab the wire and go and shake it and act like they were shocking themselves. And at the end of it, I can't remember what the context was, but Bubba had opened the cage door and there was a fucking floor camera shot of him saying, what the fuck or something. And you couldn't say fuck even on pay-per-view 20 years ago or whatever this was. And Jeff Jarrett says, are you going to go talk to him about that? And I knew they'd already had a shitty fucking match and they were going to be just lit up, right? And I said, okay, I'll go yell at him about this. So I go, Bubba. Did you have to say fuck? And he's like, God damn it. That fucking shitty match, that abortion of a fucking match. I said, well, did you have to say fuck on top of it? That's the only rule we hadn't violated. 
And in yeah, it, that was a. Um, I got to be honest with you. I don't know whether that was a shit stain or a Conan. Because LAX was in it and they had done the electrified cage in Mexico. I'm thinking that maybe it was a shit stain because he heard Conan talking. Conan? Conan! And didn't realize that it was TNA and they weren't going to be able to get the special effects right no matter what happened. But lo and behold, wouldn't you know who won the pony? Jim, our next question via the Cult of Cornette Facebook group was sent in by Ian Cook. I always wonder what? How do you spell that name? I A I N. Isn't that isn't that Ian? Would that be Ian? Well, I don't know. There's Ian's I A N. Ian's I A N, not well, I A I N. It's one of these people who just puts extra letters in their name to be douchebags, or? Well, no, don't say that. This is a listener of the show, and I'm sure his parents named him. He didn't just pick a name out of a hat. Well, he could have picked a fucking name out of a people. Do that, you know. Most people do not just pick a random name after they've had a name. I, as a matter of fact, I knew a girl named Virginia one time, but everybody called her Virgin for short, but not for long. Well, here's this question from Ian or Ian from Glasgow, Scotland. Let us know how to pronounce this. I always wondered why the British Bulldog never got a WWE title run. Did Vince not think he was good enough, or was it something else? Oh, God. Did we talk about this at one point, maybe years back? I don't know. But it, it, basically, it wasn't necessarily that Vince loved Davey. He thought he was a great talent. He featured him more often than not when he was there. And the times that he was gone were either over the, you know, the family drama, the screw job, or, you know, some of Davey's personal out of the ring piccadillos um but at the same time the the talent level and the way that it was figured pretty much for davy's whole run there it just didn't come up it's like several guys could have been the champion but it didn't come up and when when davy was one of the bulldogs that was the hogan era and davy was a tag team guy and then you know he breaks out and has the great singles match and run in Wembley with Brett and you know that run and the whole thing but that was that ended right away because of the controversy with the growth hormone shipments yeah that was kind of cut short by as I mentioned some out of the ring things and then the Hogan era was over with but by the time Davey gets back then, then it's the Michaels and Brett and I love Davey to death but does anybody think that he should have been, instead of Shawn Michaels or Bret Hart at that point, that he should have been WWE champion? Probably wouldn't have worked out as successfully as it did with the other guys. And then the screw job happens. He's gone, and then he's hurt, and then the window had closed. So it just, it, the timing, it never worked out that he would be in the spot at the time that made sense even though Vince had all the, you know, love in the world for his work. And, and also, Davey was not the strongest promo, especially as a babyface, where it's harder to be nice than it is to be an asshole. And the other guys were, you know, ahead of him on that. And then there was just the element of sometimes if Davey wasn't motivated, you know, when he was in there with Owen, it was four stars. When he was in there with fucking... Henry you know, Godwin. Henry Godwin. 
It was, I wasn't even there. So it you just hear that? What? You don't hear the thunder? You don't hear the thunder and the lightning. Oh, the way you love me is frightening. All right, well, let's get another question here, Jim. This one was sent via the Cult of Cornet Facebook group by Daryl Woodruff. I still want to get a better understanding on why wrestlers and wrestling companies are so hell-bent on rewriting their history. WWE in particular, but it seems that everyone does it. It seems like 95% of the white lies they come up with won't result in making more money. So wrestling companies rewriting their own history. Okay, well, it, it would have been a nice touch if you had provided a couple of for instances as ain't lowly used to say uh so th i mean there's rewriting history like vince does on a wholesale basis where he just takes you know the goddamn uh, the entire history of wrestling and and curtails it to or details it to his own good to madison square Garden, whatever yeah and then there's other times where I mean, even the territories would rewrite history as far as, no, Ron Bass didn't really win the fucking Southern title from Robert Fuller in Bluefield, West Virginia. Robert just bailed to go back to Knoxville or whatever the case. And But there's a tendency to try to, most of the time, when you're rewriting history or glossing over something, it's because it either it stunk, it didn't work, you don't want to remind people of something. You know, the, when Austin walked out that time and they buried him, people still remember that, but it's not in a lot of the official documentaries of the time where they had everybody from Vince to Jim Ross come out and call him a coward because that didn't benefit long-term. We'd like to rewrite that segment of history. I'm sure, you know, if, if the modern era hadn't come along with video and now the internet and YouTube where... Things can't be buried, and it, it they've had to capitalize on shit that has become notorious. You would have never seen the debut of the Shockmaster again. You probably would have never seen the Brawl for All recapped in any meaningful way. So sometimes they 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 try to have the talking heads rewrite the history that they don't really have the video to illustrate, such as. Vince McMahon made wrestling big in 1984 when it'd been in high school gyms in front of 300 smoky people or whatever the story is. You know, I remember years ago they did a McMahon DVD. Now I heard that. I heard that. I may lose you in a second because... Well, you know what? We may oh. lose you because I think that the chickens are coming home to roost and oh, all no, the, no, no. the bad karma that you've got is built up into a fucking... <laughs> thunderstorm above your head pal i've got nothing but good karma but either way karma doesn't infect you uh, infect you affect you until the next life what i was going to ask you was uh, or to mention to you was the mcmahon dvd they had shane mcmahon on there talking about black saturday and his version of events was <laughs> see vince doesn't like it <laughs> Vince doesn't like it when you talk about his kids. Well, his version of events was we were getting really high ratings on TBS, but okay. Ted Turner wanted to buy us, so we had to find a way out of there. Not the ratings nosedive. Not fans did not like it. Other wrestling shows came on that same channel and did better than them. Well, but and you've got to remember also, and the same thing goes for Stephanie. How old would Shane have been? That was 40 years ago next, what, April, May, whatever it was. Um... 
how old would Shane have been? He would have been like, what, 12? I'm sure that's probably what his dad told him. It's like, you know, Stephanie, with some of the things that she has said, it's, yes, there's an element of, uh, you know, I guess maybe sometimes now they know the difference, but they're still giving the party line. They're sticking to the story they've told. They're trying for consistency. But does anybody think that when Shane and Stephanie were 14, 15 years old, each hanging around the locker room at Madison Square Garden, which was probably the only place they ever really went to the matches, because Vince didn't even go on the road full time or TV tapings. Um, did did the boys come in and say, hey, guess what's going on down in Georgia? And boy, we're getting our ass kicked in the ratings on that new TBS slot or anything. No, they didn't. It's the boss's kids. You're not going to tell them anything's wrong. Right? I would assume so. You never know. What are your thoughts? So how did so then how did that what kind of education did they get? Did they get the education of what was really going on, or did they hear what Vince and all of Vince's friends were spinning it as and believe that is gospel? Because why would they not? Which is why that Stephanie was not really suited by any other reason than, you know, nepotism to be the head of creative when she had never been involved in wrestling to any extent past interning at the studio like as Shane did they interned and they kibitzed and I'm not knocking either one of them that's what they were told to do and asked to do but as far as having any kind of background in the overall wrestling business or even in in the weeds as they say or in the dirty details of their dad's business no they didn't because nobody was going to tell them that shit what are your thoughts on still using the fake numbers for live events, whether it's WrestleMania three, which is, you know, close to 40 years ago, or just current events still using fabricated numbers? Well, I mean, we've kind of come to expect it now, right? That everybody knows that whatever they announce is, and i still don't even know the formula. Is it everybody that bought a ticket, plus all the comps, plus all the employees that are in the building, plus all the parking attendants, plus the crew members, plus the wrestlers, or... And then are they guesstimating? Because Uncle Dave can't even figure it out. You know, he'll delve into paperwork and try to fucking crunch some numbers. And I don't even think there's a consistent uh, formula that they have for doing that. But they will, you know, they will exaggerate consistently and sometimes pretty substantially just to set a record or make a statement. I was actually, and one more thing I'll say. Yeah. I was confused about that because when they became a publicly traded company, then isn't that like giving out fake financial information? But apparently, as long as they give the real gate numbers or the real rights fees or whatever, the number of spectators falls into the entertainment category and is the entertainment version of the the statement. So it's a hundred thousand people at WrestleMania for entertainment purposes when they only sold 79,000 tickets or whatever the fuck. I saw the trial. Hulk Hogan has a 10-inch penis, but Terry Bollea doesn't. Yes. And one testicle. Terry's missing one testicle, but Hogan has still has a full set. Jim, our next question sent via the Cult of Cornet Facebook group from Bruce Siski <laughs> from San Francisco. 
Brucisky. Now here's Brucisky's question. It feels like another babyface run for Roman Reigns is inevitable. How do you think we eventually get there, and how long will it take? Who boy, howdy. Um, normally one would say, well, perhaps Solo gets too big for his britches, and it still might be that way. But I'm thinking for Roman to switch babyface is it would be such an earth-shaking, you know, needle-moving event that Solo is unproven as a, a top main event single guy, and we don't really know whether he can talk. And one would think that it would be, you know, I'm not even saying, because to turn babyface, then Cody's a babyface, but it would be a, a single name on the level of a Cody Rhodes or even a Seth Rollins or a Gunther or a, you know, Brock Lesnar or somebody who is established and has a track record as a single guy in the main events wearing a belt can cut a promo, that type of individual. And, you know, that's usually when you would have a, like uh, the tag team of Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams, when they split up, they were kind of equals or the Tully Blanchard and Gino Hernandez team. Or when you have a team that splits up, the other guy is usually comparable in terms of promo and, in, you know, you've got the built-in personal issue and they're both seen at the same level on the card because they were a team being presented together. With Solo, there's still a big... Do you see what I'm saying, Brian? There's still a discrepancy. Would that be a money-drawing singles program you know, when when one guy is being elevated to that extent. No, but I think right now, the way things have currently been done, nothing against Solo, because I think he's been great in his role, and I believe him in his role, and he's been good, right. but he's new, and it would be more akin to Roddy Piper having a match with Bob Orton Jr. when he returns as a babyface, and Orton's now aligned with Adonis, than it would be the match versus Adonis. Right. There you go. And that still wasn't disrespectful to Bob Orton Jr., but it no. was the presentation. Yeah. It was the way that everybody was being presented. That's right. So that so it's, you know, it's going to happen. It has to happen. But they don't need to just say, oh, we, we want to turn him babyface now. Who can we put him with? That doesn't need to happen. It needs to be obvious to everybody, here's the fucking guy. But on that topic, you know, John Cena never turned heel ever again after he turned babyface. Is there something to be said that Roman Reigns is so good as a heel that you shouldn't ever turn him babyface again? Well, no. Cena never turned heel because of the merchandise sales. Right, and the Make-A-Wish stuff. Right, and the Make-A-Wish. Going the opposite, no, Roman Reigns, because he is such a good heel, will eventually, and whether it's the, I would assume it would be the riding off into the twilight of his career, I'm not saying to wait till he's 60, who knows how much longer he's going to do this, but it would be for a last run of a year or two, and, and he already makes sporadic appearances, so they wouldn't be beating it to death, but it probably it needs to happen because when you get so good at being bad, the people like it. And Roddy Piper, Steve Austin, Jerry Lawler, it's through territories and history. It's going to happen. Well, Jim, our next question sent via email to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com is from Ahmed, 
This past weekend. Wait a minute, Johnson? Not Ahmed Johnson, but same spelling. I, I doesn't got to call him Johnson. This past weekend, most of the world has witnessed what has been dubbed as Barbenheimer, the Barbenheimer phenomenon. It's essentially the conflict between going to see a movie like Oppenheimer and seeing a movie like Barbie. Do you have an opinion on this madness? To be fair, I haven't watched Barbie, but it just shocked me how many people are actually comparing the depth of a magnum opus level film like Oppenheimer to Barbie. I've seen the trailers, and it may seem like fun to some, but in no sound universe compares to Oppenheimer. The reason I've asked you to opine on this is it reflects today's wrestling, not just today's society. It's like comparing Twinkle Toes to The Undertaker or Steve Austin. Never in a million years close. Regale us with your insights, King of the famed Castle of Lewis, your loyal servant, Ahmed. <laughs> okay. Talk about going around your elbow to get to your wrist on that one. It trailed off by the end there. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was drifting. Uh okay, first of all, Barbie. How can they make a fucking movie about dolls? It's Barbie and Ken, right? They come to life. They're real people. What if the dolls were people? Okay, but well they can't because they got no they got no twat, they got no dick. There's no way that this could happen. You don't see a lot of twats and dicks in the movies you go see in the theaters. Yeah, but you know they're under there somewhere. It's not a porno, you it's a movie for the families. You know that they are secreted somewhere down in the nether regions of these people, and you may not be able to stare at them. They may not be right out on display, but you know they're there somewhere. But these are people with with uh, not no cleaving crotches. They're just smooth. Why is this thing. the problem? So, Why is this the problem of all problems you have with the Barbie? Then how movie? can they be real people and be going around doing real people things when they got no no tiny bits down there? The doll has no. I mean, there's no vagina on a Barbie doll for very good reason. There's no dick on a Ken doll for good reason. That doesn't mean live actors. Because we don't want them to procreate. We don't want more of them. I don't know if that's the reason. So the point is, how can you make a movie about these these dolls? Because they don't they don't exist and they don't do anything. What would they do if they were real? You know, my kids went to see this and I refused to go, so I don't know what happened. Let me. Uh, I just googled it and a bunch of sparkles. Is, is came there up a, is there page. a what synopsis the of the plot before we get to Oppenheimer? Is there a synopsis of the Barbie plot? Uh, I what, do. Did they, did they jump into the playset and do their hair, and then Ken rides his sports car into the fucking wall because he's drunk? I'm trying to remember the commercials. I don't think that happened in any of the commercials. Well, I, w- I was adding the other. Well, now that he's a movie star, he's probably on the fucking cocaine. Probably going to run off a fucking bridge in that high-priced fucking sports car of his and, and, and liable to kill somebody on the way down. Here's the plot of the movie according to a film synopsis. Barbie and Ken are having the time of their lives in the colorful and seemingly perfect world of Barbie land. Probably down there with Colin Thompson on the beach. <laughs> it looks like he tried to make himself look like a Ken doll, so it's funny. Mm-hmm. However, when they get a chance to go to the real world, they soon discover the joys 
and perils of living among humans. That's it. Well, I mean, that's the. I can give you one that has spoilers. I don't know if you want to go see well, it. Well, I, I, no, I, no, I won't be seeing that particular film. Jesus Christ! It's now downpour here and thunder. But Oppenheimer. Any thoughts on Oppenheimer? Okay, what's Oppenheimer about? Oh, come on. I do not. Did Jess Oppenheimer, the famous '60s '70s uh, television producer, who who developed the nuclear bomb. Oh. That Oppenheimer. Here's a description of this movie, Oppenheimer film. Let me see. Uh, well, this is a long plot. It's all about the life of Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer. It's all about a guy named Oppenheimer and the way he did things. The way he developed the bomb that ended World War II. I thought that was, uh, I didn't think Oppenheimer developed the bomb. I thought that was Werner von Braun. Oppen <laughs> Oppenheimer plot summary. Here's a plot summary of Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, the new epic movie directed by Christopher Nolan, takes audiences into the mind and moral decisions of J. Robert Oppenheimer, leader of the team of brilliant scientists in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Excuse me. In Los Alamos, New Mexico. I can't read. In Los Alamos, New Mexico, who built the world's Wait first a minute. atomic bomb. They built a bomb down in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. My uncle lives in one of the houses that they put up what? Or did live many years ago in one of the houses they put up for the people going into Oak Ridge to work at the atomic laboratory down there in the mountains of East Tennessee where nobody could find them. I don't know anything about this. this you didn't know you didn't know Oak Ridge? Oak Ridge, Tennessee was built because of the bomb project. I thought it was built because of the Oak Ridge boys. No, that's where they came from. The Oak Ridge boys were after the bomb. After the Oak Ridge boys were caused by nuclear fallout. Didn't the Oak Ridge boys were they on a was it WCW already when they appeared? Yes, they were. <laughs> that was that Wrestle War in Nashville. Nashville in 89. Yes. Wrestle War 89. We got Terry Funk and the Oak Ridge Boys. Look up Oak Ridge, Tennessee there on your Google machine if on you think machine. I'm bullshitting you. Okay. And half the town was built there back then. They had the, the long houses, the shotgun houses of the cub, but they had one family on each side, and there was a wall in the middle. And my, because I always wondered when I was a kid why my uncle Harold lived in a house with two front doors and two kitchens, one at each end of the fucking house. Oak Ridge is a city in Anderson and Ro Roan or Roan counties in the eastern part of the U.S. state of Tennessee, about 25 miles west of downtown Knoxville. Oak Ridge's population in the 2020 census 31,402. Holy shit, they've grown. It is part of the Knoxville metropolitan area. Oak Ridge's nicknames include the Atomic City, the Secret City, and the City Behind the Fence. Yeah. In 1942, a man named Cornette caused a lot of trouble. Hey! No. In 1942, the United States federal government forcibly purchased nearly 60,000 acres of farmland in the Clinch River Valley for the development of a planned city supporting 75,000 residents. It was constructed with assistance from architectural and engineering from Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill from 1942 to 1943. Oak Ridge was established in 1942 as a production site for the Manhattan Project, the massive American, British, and Canadian operation that developed the atomic bomb. Being the site of Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and Y-12 National Security Complex, 
Scientific and technological developments still play a crucial role in the city's economy and culture in general. Yeah, see, everybody knows about it now in the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. But back then, they bought all that acreage forcibly from the farmers and everybody. But it was the government. They were trying to win the war. And in the middle of the East Tennessee mountains back then, no interstates. The smaller population, they put that whole fucking deal in there, and everybody that lived around it was like, oh, shit, there's some shit going on over there, but we don't want to talk about it. And they helped build the fucking bomb. Yeah. Well, whether or not those movies are good, of course, is in the eye of the beholder. I don't know if anyone will say they're awesome. We'll see what people say when they review these, but I can guarantee some awesomeness, a box of awesome or in English, a box of awesome that can be delivered to your home each and every month. Sounds like you need a box of new dentures. <laughs> and you'd be just fine. That would be awesome for you. You know, it's always better to have a box of awesome than the alternative. You could have a box of shit. You could have a box of junk. Nobody wants that. Did you see but that? a box of awesome? What? There was a, you brought up dentures. Yes. There was a story. It sounded like yours were falling out of your mouth. I don't have dentures, but there was a story the other day in the newspaper about a woman lost her dentures. She couldn't find them. And they brought her in and they did a 3D scan of her stomach and she swallowed her dentures. And there, it was the creepiest image, just these teeth in the middle of the belly or whatever the fuck it was. But anyway, a box of awesome. A belly? A box of awesome. Well, you know, Bobby Heenan told me that somebody threw their bridge at him one time. Back in the 60s, not the full set of dentures, but, you know, like Mama Cornette had a bridge because back in the old days, they did that. I don't know what they do now. How unhappy do you have to be at a heel wrestler to take out your teeth and throw them at him? Well, I tell you what. Anyway, speaking of a box of awesome is what we were trying to talk about. That's from our friends at Bespoke Post that we have been talking about in the past and then after our brief hiatus from commercials for the last couple of shows now, that the folks at Bespoke Post go around and, and, and what the kids call it curate, Brian, but they find and carefully pick and choose from the best small companies, small brands around the world to put together boxes of awesomeness that are delivered to you each month according to your interests, hobbies, likes, dislikes, peculiarities, picadillos, Possibly even fetishes. I haven't gone through the whole list, but they got everything else. You got camping gear essentials. You got cookout must-haves. You got drinking games. You've got knives. <laughs> they may not go together, the drinking games and the knives. But you've got cooking items. You have got tools. You've got sauces. You've got cocktail outfits. You've got Everything that you could possibly want and more that you use or peruse or manage to need in your daily life. And all you got to do is go to boxofawesome.com and you look through the, the various items. You take the quiz because you're, you need to tell them some interest that you've got. Don't worry, the, the questions are not too invasive. But then after you en enter your blood type. You don't do that. That's too invasive. Well, no, it, it really, they've got these well, new no, things now where right. they can just scan your forehead instead of having to stick you. Who does? 
Well, the, 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 the doctor people. The doctor people, not the box of awesome people. Well, no, you got to go to the doctor to get the thing to tell your blood type so that you can enter it into the quiz. No, you or don't you have... can just hit skip. No, you, okay, well, there is no skip because you don't have to skip the question. It's not there. They don't ask you about your blood type. That would be invasive. That's the kind of question they don't ask you. They want you to enjoy your awesomeness, not invade your privacy. Well, what if some of the awesomeness in their box is something that is intended to invade your privacy? Well, what happens then? You're in a what the a hell does that 22. mean? I don't know. <laughs> they release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories, and I'll have you know that each box is valued at around seventy dollars. But you're going to pay a fraction of that price. You know what a fraction is? That's just a yeah. drama, a soupçon, a mere minute portion. A fraction, one third now, one third in cash over two years, and one third in stock. Anyway, back to Box of Awesome. You're supporting the small businesses because 90% of everything that comes in your Box of Awesome is from a small, up-and-coming brand. They're people, good, honest people, people of the soil, people who like to farm and till and make things and form things. And they're simple people. They get up early in the morning to go to work, and they... They work by the sweat of their brow. They work their fingers to the bone. And by the end of the day, when the sun is disappearing on the far horizon and they've got bony fingers, they stick all the stuff that they've made and grown and formed in these boxes. And then they die. And then the boxes come to you. It's free to sign up and you can skip a month or cancel any time. So if you want to have the most awesome box, in your neighborhood, then all you got to do is go to boxofawesome.com and enter code JCE at checkout, and you're going to get 20% off your first monthly box. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to get a monthly box. Except if you're married, then you might only get it every three months or so. Boxofawesome.com, code JCE for 20% off the box of Stuff that you're going to get, that you're going to love, that you're going to use, that people are not going to be able to take over. They're going to have to pry this box out of your cold, dead fingers. And I can't wait to see that happen. And of course, we hope you have a long life. We do not hope to see that happen. We hope your lively, blood-filled fingers are enjoying the box of awesome. I dare them to come and try to pry my box of awesome out of my cold, dead fingers. All right, well, we'll see what happens. There are new things. They could take your temperature by scanning your forehead, but box of awesome. No, it's your blood type. Oh, your blood type. Yeah. See, the temperature's old news. They've been doing that for a while now. Well, once again, And then of- also, wait, wait till you find out how they fucking get the stool sample extracted. That's insane. What? Yeah. I, you know, I didn't even have to go in the doctor's office last time. There was this guy. As I was pulling up and parking, he said, here, we got the examinations going right here. He had a little table out back. Boy, getting that stool sample, that was tough. Yeah, I don't know about any of that, ladies and gentlemen, but once again, boxofawesome.com. Enter the code JCE at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com, code JCE, 20% off your first box. Jim, there's no no good transition, but it wasn't their (laughs) first box, but it was another boxy Saturday night with AEW Collision, and the ratings are in. Well, it certainly wasn't a stool sample. No. We know that much. That's Wednesday night. That's Wednesday night. We have, they, they give us the, just the regular old urine sample on 
Saturday night, and we like it. I don't know what I'm talking about. That was a transition, folks, from the sponsor spot now to what happened on Collision, the ratings. It was another another fine wrestling program. How did the people feel about it? This week's AEW Collision, July 22nd, on TNT, was watched by 618,000 viewers. Okay, we uh, now is that... That is up slightly from last week, as I recall, or is it? Tell me. Well, according to WrestleNomics, by a slim margin, this was the highest total viewership for Collision other than the debut episode. Huh, excellent. So they're building something by having good shows, and people are slowly picking up on that fact and tuning in to see the good show that they're doing. And... We mentioned last week, and it's been that pattern, that this show keeps more of its viewers and indeed sometimes gains viewers as it goes on, whereas the Wednesday night program does the opposite. So was that the case here this past Saturday night? Well, let's go to these numbers once again. These are from WrestleNomics. One other note here, just because I do bring up the key demo, this was also the lowest key demo number other than the 4th of July weekend. So higher overall number, but lower 18 to 49. The show opened. Quarter- well, what were the people that were between the ages of 18 and 49 doing the other night? Barbieheimer. Ah, there you go. Segment one, 8 to 8.15 p.m., the opening backstage promos, and then Ricky Starks being confronted by CM Punk, who's confronted by Christian Cage and Luchasaurus, confronted by Darby Allen. And you were looking back to see if I was looking back to see if you were looking back to see if I was looking back. All right. Well, you were looking back to see 664,000 viewers. Oh, okay. Starts out with a bang there. Now that number would indicate we're going to lose some along the way before we get to the average. Well, before we get to segment two, maybe segment two or quarter two, 8.15, 8.30 p.m. The Andrade El Idolo backstage angle where he's removed from the arena. Picture-in-picture ads. Action Andretti and Darius Martin versus Bullet Club Gold with picture-in-picture. 556,000 viewers. Ouch! Okay. So, there is some element, as we mentioned, of if you want to get guys over, they got to beat people on TV, and when you give them people to beat on TV, people know what's going to happen, so Action Andretti and... Tits McGee was Darius not a, Martin. There you go. Was not uh, a marquee match for the team of gin and juice, but one would not have thought that they would lose a hundred and eight thousand viewers there over that transition. Did people think, well, Punk's been on? He's not. No, we knew he was coming back. Are they coming back? Well, let's find out. Quarter three, eight thirty to eight forty-five p.m. The final three minutes of the previous tag team match. The post-match with the guns, an ad break, and Miro versus Nick Camarado, followed by an FTR video, 567,000 viewers. Okay, a small gain of 11,000 for a segment that, if I hadn't seen them bail out in the previous one, I'd have said that's where they're going to lose some people. But uh, So we're headed back in the right direction, but that's minor fluctuation. Quarter 4, 8.45 to 9 p.m., the entrances with picture-in-picture for the House of Black versus Billy Gunn and the Acclaimed, and then that match, 
620,000 viewers. Okay, potentially. They just didn't like all the shit that went on in the middle, but they came back for the acclaimed. We picked up another 53,000. So, hmm, they're picking and choosing this week, it appears. Well, we'll see how it continues to appear. The 9 o'clock hour, quarter 5, 9 to 9, 15 p.m., FTR's live in-ring promo, an ad break, and Taya Valkyrie versus Sky Blue, 609,000 viewers. And we're back down 11,000. Again, not a strong quarter, and that's kind of normal bathroom break-type fluctuation. So they, uh, they tuned out drastically in two and three. They've come back in four, and they're hanging around in five. Quarter 6, 9.15 to 9.30 p.m. Taya Valkyrie versus Sky Blue continued with picture-in-picture, picture, and then Taya Valkyrie's live promo and an ad break, 621,000 viewers. Good Lord. So their girls' matches gain viewers. And maybe we attribute that Sky to Blue. Uh, Sky Blue's Darius Maximi. Derriere. I think Derriere is still approved as uh, not being too offensive. So we're back up to, well, it, only in Wisconsin, America's dairy land, where you, as soon as you step <laughs> off the plane, you smell that dairy air. But uh, they used to hate it when I would tell them that in Milwaukee and Green Bay. All right, so we're stuck at about 610 to 620 for 45 minutes. Where are we going from here? Quarter seven. CM Punk and Darby Allen versus Christian Cage and Ricky Starks with picture in picture. 653,000 viewers. Okay, so now they pick up another 32,000 when Punk comes back on screen. And the final quarter, quarter 8, 9.45 to 10 p.m., the continuation and the end of the match with Punk and Allen versus Cage and Starks with picture-in-picture picture, and the post-match, 657,000 viewers. And everybody stayed, and they picked up the few that mistakenly thought the main event wasn't going to start till 15 minutes till. So, yeah, obviously, clearly this program every week either keeps the, the same amount of viewers at the, at the finish as it had at the start while losing some in some of the drabber quarters, or it actually gains. And most of the time, it's when Punk is on the screen that you do your highest numbers. And that's, none of that is surprising because it's a good program that you, as for all the reasons we've mentioned, you don't want to fucking just leave in the middle because you're not seeing endless chaos and Punk's the star of it. So there you have it. And again, a very different ratings pattern than what you see on Dynamite. So you would assume a different audience or at least a different retention level of the audience on a different night. I don't know. <laughs> Well, and honestly, the way that you read the, the program, it sounded worse than when we watched it. It didn't sound like anything to speak of, but when we watched it, it was better. So, And it didn't sound like anything to speak of when they were building it up. Isn't that funny? It ended up being okay to watch it, but on paper, it sounds like shit. Yeah. Imagine that. Whereas the, it's the other way around again on, uh, on Wednesday nights. It's the bizarro world, Wednesday and Saturday. They couldn't be farther apart. Well, Jim, let's go from the bizarro world to the dark side of the ring. And this week's episode of Dark Side of the Ring featured Bam Bam Bigelow. Oh, you know, I really, I, you know, I liked Bam Bam. Obviously, I didn't get to spend a ton of time working in the same place as, as he was. Only 
briefly in, in WCW and then, you know, for a little while in the WWF through the Lawrence Taylor WrestleMania match and everything, but what a great guy. And, and he was, you know, he was the kind of guy, if uh, all the Jersey guys that we've lost, if they were still here, Dennis Coraluzzo would have been in this program and Candido would have been in the program. And, you know, I didn't mind this one necessarily like I did the the Abdullah one. Focusing, I mean, it, they had a lot of his wrestling highlights, but again, it wasn't a documentary of his career it focused more on his family life and how you know the drugs affected his relationship with his wife and his kids and etc and that he was a wrestler while doing that because of the nature of you know bam bam having died so long ago you know this was i guess uh, abby's still around we didn't need to see half an hour of the dipshit in canada that you know, tried to leech off of his Abby's famousness to have a career. <sighs> but, you know, in this case, this was a story about Bam Bam and had you know, pictures that I've never seen before of, you know, him as a kid when he was always a giant kid anyway. But then as a teenager and all the, you know, just pay, when's the last time you saw a picture of Bam Bam Bigelow with hair? You know, so that that was interesting, and I thought they had good talking heads on this one. Taz it comes off not only really well because he knew him and worked with him, but also because he's he sounds like a an ex wrestler that's not insane. DDP obviously was instrumental in a couple of different points in in his career. His wife and kids were tremendous in this Shane Douglas knew him for a while. I'm not, I'm not sure that uncle Dave added too much, uh, you know, besides the fact that what everybody else knew that he was a, a phenomenon when he first started in the business and, you know, got people's attention so quickly. But, um, I don't, but before we talk about him, what did you think of this one? Since you are usually the ones with the, uh, the one with the opinionated opinions. I thought that, in terms of the Talking Heads, I thought it may have been the best collection of Talking Heads they have. I thought DDP was great. I thought Taz was fantastic on here. The family was great. The wife was great. And to me, the biggest problem was just it felt like they were forcing some of their stuff stylistically into the show. When they had the reenactment of the son in the hallway being told that his dad died and people were just walking by him, that was necessary. Yeah. At that point, you're just trying to justify the existence of the style of the show, as opposed to actually do what's right for the actual program. Beyond style issues, I thought it was one of the better overall episodes. Of course, there were a lot of things they could have included, other people they could have talked to, but like I said, great talking heads, filled in a lot of gaps, I think, for people that didn't know anything about Bam Bam. And, you know, you know the only thing I'll say as a takeaway, usually whenever I go back and watch ECW, it's like, up to the first pay-per-view, it's up to the beginning of 97. None of the stuff really after that. I, I watched it, but I never got into it. I never loved it the same way. ECW really changed. So I hadn't watched a lot of that Bam Bam stuff in a long time. And, you know, the clips they showed uh, from ECW, it just really, it, it's hard looking back and realizing that's, <laughs> like when you see all the stuff we see on Wednesday night and it looks like crap, yeah, it's influenced by that. But 
that was the stuff that really left guys messed up. Yeah. And that, I don't, I, well, we'll go ahead and say this now since you brought it up. I didn't want to start the program on a down note, and it's nothing bad about Bam Bam Bigelow. But when you look at the ECW highlights, and not only the furniture, but the dives, and the fucking angles, and the going through the ring, and the blah, 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 you realize now how much damage, in hindsight, ECW as a whole did to the wrestling business. And uh, it's it's almost like, yeah, you know, with Mick Foley used thumbtacks, but he, he was also a one-of-a-kind personality and brilliant psychology and blah, 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 and all the things we've said. Heyman did all this, but he also had the mind to manipulate people, not only the fans, but his wrestlers. But he knew his market there. And that it flew in the Northeast, where all the fans were smart, everybody was reading the newsletters, the whole nine yards, as we've talked about. And it wouldn't fly in other parts of the country because it didn't make any fucking sense to them because they weren't smart yet. There weren't a thousand... We've talked about the dichotomy between Smoky Mountain and ECW. There weren't a thousand fucking newsletter readers in the state of Tennessee in 1995. But there were in Philadelphia in 1995. But the... the so the point I was making is with Mick, he had other things to offer. Heyman was a fucking genius with knowing the audience there that he could build that atmosphere with and manipulating the guys to destroy themselves and bankrupt themselves for him in whole nine yards. But all the, all that anybody else got from that, the independent promoters and the fucking, whether it be shit stain trying to, be ECW and the WWF or whether it was all the goddamn XPWs and extreme this and that's all they saw was breaking shit. All they saw was flying off of shit. And that's how ECW pretty much destroyed the wrestling business with its influence that we still see today. And it comes back to you when you see all that footage put one right after another, and then realize the majority of the people, or at least a good percentage of the people that are in that footage, are either dead or have had serious drug issues. And uh, and Taz, and stood, and Taz stood out. And Taz stood out because he doesn't have those issues. And I have to say, for a retired wrestler, he's one of the best talking heads I've ever seen in one of these things. Yes, because he's intelligent and he's, you know, goddamn, he's a broadcaster and he's level-headed and he's, as I mentioned earlier, not insane. But so anyway, moving on from that, all I can say is the guys that worked for Smoky Mountain for me and didn't go to ECW to work for Paul, all they got was fat. Everybody that worked for Paul got addicted and dead. Anyway. So Diamond Dallas Page, who is from the Jersey Shore, as we're all aware, was the one to suggest to Bam Bam, and I did not know that, because it was the period of time where we knew that Page had wanted to be a wrestler, and then 
it didn't work out and he started managing bars and clubs and doing things. Yeah, he's on some shows that you there are some programs that are around from Massachusetts in 79 as Handsome Dallas Page. Oh my god. I I I didn't know that much detail and I didn't know that that Bam Bam came into one of Page's clubs and they just started talking about wrestling. Page wasn't even in it. So Bam Bam actually got in got back in before Page did. So that's odd, but I remember hearing, and by the way, the Bam Bam thing, a lot of people as well, who stole it? Gordy or Bigelow? Flintstones. Exactly. Both of them stole it from the Flintstones. Gordy predated, Gordy was the Southern Bam Bam and, and Bigelow was the Jersey Bam Bam, but it both came from the Flintstones. So nobody, there was no heat between them. It's just that that's naturally what they look like to people. And I honestly, I think, I think Terry Gordy probably fit Bam Bam better because he, you know, he had more of a smile on his face most of the time instead of the tattooed fucking, Argh. you know, but it felt different to me as a fan because Bam Bam Bigelow was his full name. You were never told his name was Scott Bigelow, Scott right. Bam Bam Bigelow, it was just Bam Bam Bigelow. It was Terry Bam Bam Gordy. Yeah. But you could just call him Terry Gordy. Bam Bam was more of a nickname, even though it wasn't Scott Bigelow's real name. It felt like his real name. And what about, by the way, Bam Bam's son is Scott Colton Bigelow. Scott Colton, is that not old, uh, who's he, what's he, Colt Cabana's real name? I believe so. And that's, that's odd, because I don't think they ever cross paths. Well, when they run out of topics on Dark Side, that'll be the next season. Who is Scott Colton? <laughs> Anyhow. I don't, you, I remember this. I don't know. How old were you in 1985? I keep forgetting. I was five. Okay. You probably don't remember it then when it actually happened. But the debut, Bam Bam Bigelow's professional wrestling debut was at Studio 54 and it was promoted by Paul Heyman. And that was true. Yeah. And I wish they had, a, I don't even know if there's tape available. I have all the publicity stuff because he sent it to the Wrestling News. I have it in my Paul Heyman file. I have yeah. all the Studio 54 stuff he ever did that was wrestling related. Well, and, and people are saying, how the, what happened there when, when Bigelow got recommended to get into wrestling by Page, he found the wrestling school that there was at the time in New Jersey, Larry Sharp's Monster Factory, of which at various points, Dennis Corluzzo was partners with him. Originally, Buddy Rogers was the partner in it. Yes, he had started... Uh, he had started it and lent his name to it in what late seventies when he lived in New Jersey. Yeah, maybe seventy nine or so, something yeah. somewhere around there. But anyway, the the thing is, Paul at that time was a photographer, which obviously can't say anything bad about. That's you know one of the ways to get into business. But Paul had then was it? Oh God, was it Wrestling Eye? Maybe that he took over. Or one of the wrestling magazines that had newsstand distribution. Um, I can't remember which I think one. It was one of mine. You know what? Was it? Was it one of the ring wrestling deals that? I, I believe so. Because remember, everything got split up into different magazines. It was Ring Wrestling, Wrestling Review, uh, Wrestling News, obviously. Then it was just wrestling. So uh, I think well, it, I think it's that. Nevertheless, Paul got the editorship of a failing wrestling magazine. And he was trying to not only publicize wrestling, but publicize himself. This was when he was starting to want to be a manager. 
And as I've mentioned with my background in those days, you didn't just decide you were going to be a manager and go to some independent show and do it. You couldn't, a promoter had to ask you, and that was few and far between in the legitimate territories. And so Paul E. was lobbying to be somebody. So he would be a photographer at the, at the matches, and he was also editing the wrestling magazine. And as, as we mentioned, Paul always had energy, and he was going to all these clubs in, in New York because he wanted to be, you know, like the, what was the other place he always used to plug? The China Club. China Club. He'd always, I was at the China Club. And I, well, did you get any fucking tea sets? I don't know what the fucking China Club is or care. But anyway, so he was doing all that shit. So he talked to people at Studio 54 into having a wrestling match as the professional debut of Bam Bam Bigelow, this big fucking 400-pound cartwheeling, tattoo-headed motherfucker from Asbury Park. And that got a minor modicum of publicity, but he got it in all the wrestling magazines, but I think he got it some places outside too, right? And he was he did something with Flair too, didn't he there? He gave Flair the wrestler of the year, I think for 85. He had Magnum and uh, I want to say Jimmy Garvin, maybe Dusty come to Studio 54 when they did a Meadowland show. <laughs> and I believe he was actually working as a PR person for Studio 54 at the time. So that's how he had connections to get that story out beyond just wrestling. And then the the crushing blow came that Larry Sharp contacted, I guess, uh, Lawler in Memphis on behalf of Bam Bam Bigelow and got him booked, and Larry Sharp went as Bam Bam's manager and not Paul. And I don't and Larry didn't I don't think he stayed with him down there the whole time. I think he just went down and did introductory interviews and stuff. You know, they didn't really go into that, but it's probably a, you know, a story there. I don't know if it's dark side worthy of the Larry Sharp split from Bam Bam. Because Larry Sharp expected Bam Bam to pay him throughout the rest of his career, didn't he? Well, yeah. Yes, there was. it was one of those deals that I think that Larry had signed him up to like one of those Rick Bassman deals where, okay, I'll, I'll train you and you give me 10% of the, your money for the rest of your life. And that wasn't going to happen. But I think also that's where Lawler and Dennis Coraluzzo first met at that time period, isn't it? Where Dennis was doing booking and Lawler on his shows later on when he and Larry had split up and, and also Dennis getting on Memphis TV. But anyway, so suddenly in 19, what was it? Late 85, first part of 86, Bam Bam Bigelow is in Memphis working with Lawler and He's doing cartwheels and he's doing drop kicks and he's doing splashes off the top. And even though he was green, he was a natural. He was a, a phenom. And there also, Lawler can work with anybody. So suddenly everybody was saying, well, this guy's, you know, he's going to be the biggest star in the business. This is the greatest thing we've ever seen. And of course, the Memphis footage, they showed some studio stuff but that was glossed over and what was really glossed over <laughs> world class yes <laughs> because and i mean again i'm in i'm in dallas and no we've, we we're working for crockett at that point but i mean i think when when bam bam started probably in memphis i was still watching the superstars of wrestling shows on in atlanta and and so you know so seeing the memphis tv or whatever but, you know, everybody that was paying attention, 
And Uncle Dave loved him, and all the newsletter readers, the tape traders, were like, Bam, Bam, Bigelow, holy shit, this is wild. And then he goes to Dallas to world class, and the territory is not what it once was, and that's when George Scott had George Scott had been, um, goddamn, I get when what did we, he was in between. He had fallen out. He had been fired by the WWF because he had fallen out bad with Hulk Hogan, and that right. was the final straw. And then, and b- because he wanted more sensible wrestling, right? Is the story that he told it, and Hogan wanted more money. Hogan, <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> Hogan wanted to make money with the stuff. Uh, but he went to world class. This is at a weird time when world class was starting to struggle. And also Vince still had his eyes on world class. George Scott goes down there. The Iron Sheik shows up. Tony Atlas is black Superman. They get Ricky Steamboat for, I think it was the Cotton Bowl. A couple Bowl. of shots. Cotton yeah, Bowl. Yeah. And that, so. that was before because George Scott did two things in booking between Vince and and WCW in 1989. It was Dallas here. And then for br- a brief period of time. In the uh, McGurk territory, right? That or, was before. That was that before. was, but no shit. That what am I thinking? But that, that was, was like that was right. That was Wait a minute. That was right before Watts annexed the McGurk territory. So yeah, because it went down the toilet. So basically, George Scott <laughs> comes in and books for McGurk, and he goes out of business. He comes in and books for books for Fritz, and he goes out of business. He comes in and books for Ted Turner, and they fire him right before they go out of business. Anyway, that's the wrestling so, story, though. You only have to like be a good booker one time in your career for a little period of time. And then you get jobs for the rest of your life booking. But anyway, George Scott made Bam Bam Bigelow, the beast from the East, the Asbury park tattoo headed cartwheeling, drop kicking giant, the Russian crusher Yurkov, which was alarmingly close to crusher Jerkov. And it didn't work as you would imagine. And I remember I remember me on the phone with Dave Meltzer laughing at what the fuck has this idiot done to Bam Bam Bigelow? And then suddenly, you know, at least Vince had his eye on him and he got out of that. And they brought him in and it was an instant push. All the managers wanted him. The same thing they had done a few years earlier for Randy Savage. And he picks a babyface manager who had never been there before, Oliver Humperdinck. Yeah. And... They said it. I mean, he was the final babyface on the Survivor Series team in 87. They were pushing him hard. And then he was just gone. It was weird because I got into wrestling in 89. And there was no mention of him. He wasn't in their magazine. There were no images. But then the video game came out. He was in the video game. And then every now and then you'd see his image in a magazine. And he was such a fascinating looking guy. But I never actually got to see him. (laughs) Well, and they said on the program here. And there were comments from his wife that it was jealousy from the other guy, which I can see if you say, okay, here is a guy that's been in the business a year and a half. And suddenly he's being pushed as Hulk Hogan's tag team partner. I can see that from some people. I doubt very seriously. Many people expressed it to his face. And at the same point, you know, most of the guys, I I wasn't in the WWF at that time. So I don't know what the, locker room was like but most of the guys that i had been around in the crockett territory if that when nikita koloff came in yes you ribbed him about his inexperience or you just ribbed him and arn would uh, browbeat him in in a collegial way every so often but 
a guy with that obvious talent. No, they they didn't fuck. They didn't try to rough Nikita Koloff up in the in the Crockett locker room. I don't think they're going to try to rough Bam Bam Bigelow up in the WWF. They said Andre did that Andre match at the Garden. Yeah. You know, and and it's well known when Andre didn't like somebody, he let him know it. And I think that's probably indicative of maybe because Bam Bam at that point in time, that was before I even met him, so I don't know how he was, but it may have been he may have had a little early Mark Henry syndrome where he got in a world that he wasn't familiar with, he didn't know how to come off and got heat without really trying to. Right. Plus Andre, to be fair, was also getting more and more broken down and more and more drunk and more and more yeah. cranky. I mean, this is like the cranky Andre the Giant era. <laughs> cranky Andre. Uh, but yeah, so that one-year run, it probably with reading through the lines, he wasn't ready for it. He didn't know how to handle himself at that level yet. But uh, you can't deny, you know, the in-ring talent he had. So, and boy, the run in WCW... <laughs> Was not even mentioned. What did they say? And he worked for some United States promotions. Yeah, and then they showed a clip from Starcade. Yeah, and one of those clips, he and Barry Windham had a fucking incredible match, as I recall. That's Starcade, Starcade '88. Um, and that's when Barry was still on top of his game. And Bam Bam was brought in as a babyface because he was just off WWF TV as a babyface. Yeah, and that's and that's when Humperdinck came in. And uh, I was in bunkhouse manager bunkhouse battle royals with me and Humperdinck were the only two babyface managers, and it was JJ and Gary Hart and Paul Jones and Paul E. Did he wear his Technicolor or, outfit? Humperdinck? Uh, yes, he did. You know he did, brother. <laughs> anyway, so but then they they covered it. Bam Bam went to Japan some, but finally comes back to the WWF for the longer run in the early 90s. And, you know, obviously the the most famous portion of that was the WrestleMania 95 match with Lawrence Taylor. We've talked about that here on the program. I encourage everybody to go to the YouTube channel for minute, long-winded details on the Lawrence Taylor and Bam Bam Bigelow match. But again, I've, I don't know that anybody else could have done that but Bam Bam could have made Lawrence Taylor look like he knew what the fuck he was doing because somebody's going to say, well, Shawn Michaels or Bret Hart, but they would have had to have also been big enough to move Lawrence Taylor around when he blew up and or, you know, just suffer that weight on him. It was not an easy task that what Bam Bam did there. And Pat Patterson, that's why he was the referee in case Vince always put Pat in that situation when you had a non-wrestler or, you know, somebody of importance involved that you needed all the experience and calling shit on the fly that you could have. But we've talked about there was Bam Bam 400 pounds. And at that point, as we see from this episode on drugs, and he was fine after the match. And Lawrence Taylor, this world-class football player they drug him in with his fucking toes dragging the ground gasping for breath coming out of that match vince's move was to turn bam bam babyface and try to ride off the publicity he got for being involved in that main event which was a big thing in the northeast but maybe not as big everywhere else because of you know lt was a new york giant it doesn't necessarily well yeah doesn't resonate everywhere 
that that was what one of the problems was with why that wasn't a banner WrestleMania is everybody thought, oh, it's Lawrence Taylor. And I'm like, I know I'm not a football fan, but does everybody love Lawrence Taylor as much as y'all do? But they turned Bam Bam Babyface when they briefly still had the Slim Jim deal before they decided they still wanted to stay with Randy and go to WCW, which upset Vince to no end. They tried to replace Randy with Bam Bam as a babyface. And this is right around the period of time where the click is rising up in power. Bam Bam didn't really run with them. Should he have been turned babyface? Should he have stayed heel? What would you have done coming out of that LT match differently? Oh, God. I wish I'd have prepared for that question because this is the period of time, the, the last nine months I was running Smoky Mountain Wrestling and about 10 months before I moved up and got on creative was that WrestleMania. So I was only, again, bopping in for the TVs and the pay-per-views. I don't remember that I necessarily had a problem with them turning Bam Bam Babyface because, you know, after he had been featured like that, at WrestleMania, you wanted to keep the guy on top or put the guy on top. And he was a good baby face in terms of he was like a, a kick-ass baby face like the Jim Duggan in Mid-South or the, you know, fucking th that rough-looking, not even secondary, but kind of equal-level baby face to your good-looking matinee idol hero star of the movie type baby face. So I didn't have a problem necessarily with that. But again, as we hear from this program and see from the fact that he was gone by what the end of the year, that he was having problems and the pain pills and the body starting to break down. And, but that, I don't know the specifics of how the office was feeling about him because that was the several month period before I joined it. So I don't know what the plans were that they had that they, that they, that did not come to fruition. Hey, can I say one more thing about Bam Bam? I always hated when he changed the outfit to either the flames all of a sudden weren't red or orange or yellow. It was just blue. Like blue was odd. Well, black and white was the oddest. And then I didn't like the Bam Bam Bigelow logo that he started adding to the middle of the, <laughs> chest it was like i guess a b up top and a b on the side and a b on the other side i didn't like those things well see i've always said i mean he looked he looked rough but it was a work in progress in memphis when he came down and just had the the jean shorts and the fucking torn shirt or whatever but i i didn't see i know he got superheroed up and he stuck with that for the rest of his life because he went to the wwf and vince liked superheroes but I saw this guy as some kind of goddamn biker gang looking post-apocalyptic science fiction movie chain dragging something just coming at you. And, and boy, with a house of black entrance on that motherfucker, right? I always thought if, if somebody had fleshed out just the the bestiality of not bestiality, but you not know the, the bestiality. Well, not the bestiality. No, not with the Dalmatians, but the the beast from the East, the beast look, the goddamn legitimacy of him. You know, instead of a bodysuit with superhero flames on it, I'd like to have seen some kind of goddamn futuristic fucking alien being or something. I don't know. 
I don't, I don't know. You don't. I don't know, but he so he found a Mark doctor and was trading autographed pictures and tickets to the wrestling matches for pain pills. And that's I was that Hackett from Indianapolis or was that just his own personal one I wonder and they never mentioned the doctor's name. Oh, I don't know, but I Based on the way they said it, I was imagining it was a New Jersey doctor, just based on where he was living yeah. and everything, but I don't know. Or New Jersey or Florida or wherever the fuck he was at at that point. He was coming to the house. And then, obviously, the the last real mainstream run he had, high visibility, was with WCW in the late 90s before they went out of business with Paige. But at that point, that's where he had started no-showing and, and couldn't function and with the schedule and then his daughter told the heartbreaking story about him getting arrested driving in the car with her when he was nodding off fucked up and and then the police came and took him away in front of her that had to be horrible and that's what broke up his marriage and everything and i again because he got in the business later than i did i always assumed he was younger than i was but I guess he was the same age. He was 45 years old in January of 2007. He just started, I started a little early and he started a little late. But that's a, you know, can you imagine, even though obviously at his size in mid 40s, he couldn't have done all the things that he did when he was young. That was just the start of the, the fan fest era, the legends reunions, all this. He could have made a fortune again, a second career, just appearing, signing autographs and doing, you know, appearances. Yeah. And I did think, uh, not to play spoiler, but later on in the documentary it was pretty cool that his ex-wife said that she turned over all the rights to the children. So they get all royalties. They're in charge of the Bam Bam Bigelow estate. Yeah. Or IP, I guess I should say. But, um, but anyway, uh, tremendous in-ring talent and and nice guy. I obviously didn't ever had any crosswords with him. Uh, if I had been irritated at anything he'd done, I probably wouldn't have told him. But he was, like they said, he was a big, fun-loving guy, unless obviously he had a reason to be ticked off about something or whatever, or then later on if he was under the influence. But uh, but this, I, I like the show overall, uh, just to see him get more recognition because he's another guy because he's he's been gone for long enough now that you know he's not on the lips of everybody all the current fans well there it is dark side of the rings bam bam bigelow episode what's the next episode do you know uh next with bash at the beach 2000 oh okay i didn't realize that so we get to hear not only people talk about what an idiot shit stain is but we get to hear him try to lie his way out of it Jim, let's get some questions uh, and some things, some topics that have been sent in by the listeners before we get out. I've just been sent this, an article from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter website. Oh, boy. Kota Ibushi. Oh, boy. Addresses critics of AEW blood and guts performance. And I have a tweet here. Well, how, did, how did he address them? Did he jump into a pit of thumbtacks and then spit at them? No, but funny enough, there is a photo that he attached to this tweet with his missive of him with his back filled with thumbtacks. <laughs> and here's a... So wait so wait a minute. Here, this proves that what I have to say is completely valid. 
Because here's a picture of me with a bunch of thumbtacks stuck in my back. This is the purported translation here. I'm home. It's my fault that I didn't know thumbtacks and glass after all this time. I have thin wrestling shoes, so it penetrated, and it was just painful from the middle, and I ended up moving like an old man. I'm sorry. Far from being unable to kick, both ankles were stiff. Life with a cane for the first time in my life. What in the fuck? No, I'll be cured tomorrow. That is Kota Ibushi. So he addresses that his critics. Is, that is a translation? That is a translation. Obviously a very empowering, uh, uplifting message. So why is he walking with a cane? Because he took a bump in thumbtacks. No, I guess or, it's because he stepped in thumbtacks and he wore thin wrestling shoes. Well, and here's another thing. Why is he wearing a fucking pair of boots with soles so fucking thin that you could stick a thumbtack through it? And if the thumbtacks through the soles of his shoes hurt, then why did he take a bump in them with his bare back? I've never thought of this issue until now, but have you ever run into an issue where a wrestler had thin soles on their wrestling boots? No. <laughs> <laughs> I know I hurt myself. I just have thin soles on these boots. I, I was he, and he was saying, I'm sorry. Was he apologizing for the match? Was he apologizing for his miserable showing in the match? Was he apologizing for the thin soles on his shoes? And he said, He's never heard of thumbtacks and broken glass at the start of the thing? I'm home. It's my fault that I didn't know thumbtacks and glass after all this time. He didn't know. So the, he knew of them, but it, they had never been properly introduced. So he knew they existed, but he didn't know them on a first-name basis. They had never spoken. No mingling. No mingling. What the fuck is this guy's problem? Well, he's back in Japan. He apparently is using a cane. But he says, don't worry about it, as he uh, says here, no, I'll be cured tomorrow. That is Kota Ibushi. What day did that tweet come out? This, <laughs> this tweet came out 9.44 p.m. July 25th, 2023. Okay, he's cured. It's the next day. It's tomorrow. So, nothing more to see here. Kota's fine. Moving on. Well, let's move on here, Jim. Another... Topic that several people have sent in. Let me pull this up. It is an article. It is an article from Cultaholic by Aiden Gibbons. Poor Rampage ratings led to the creation of AEW Faction. And it has some quotes here from, I guess, QT Marshall was on Talk is Jericho, the Chris Jericho podcast, explaining why he's on their television show. What did he have to say for himself? Here's what he had to say. We did an episode of Rampage that was the lowest drawing Rampage of all time. I was in the main event. <laughs> I will say this. The main event did really well, but it was just overall a very poorly rated Rampage. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? And Tony called me. He said, hey, I think you're not presented as a huge star. And then you're not leading a bunch of stars, so maybe it's time to disband. Let's come up with a new idea. And someone pitched just Joe from WWE, you know? So I was like, oh man, I don't want to be just another joke. I want to do something fun. I just said, what can we come up with? And then Tony said, have you ever seen the movie Popstar? 
And I said, no. He said, well, if you look at it, they make fun of TMZ. So he showed me the clip and loved the clip. Oh, good God, it's Tony's idea. And I said, okay. And this was all supposed to be, at the end, the payoff was going to be that it was all good stuff about Will Hobbs. We bury everyone else, and it would end up that I was with Powerhouse Hobbs. That was supposed to be the start. But then when the Wardlow match happened, everything just kind of... It was Hobbs versus Wardlow in Hobbs' hometown in San Francisco. So it was like, what do we do? And then it was kind of, QT, we're going to put you with him now. And I was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. You know? So then we had to kind of go backwards and solo... This is a grown adult. And this, these are grown adults allegedly in charge of a national television wrestling promotion. And Solo's always been Solo. So he's someone I can count on. He's professional. And when we originally thought about using the other guys, it was, we need a female. Who can we get? And a couple of names came up, and I spoke to Apparently a couple of Apparently nobody. People. If he talks like that, he can't get any females. And I just remembered Harley Cameron from doing Dark and the music stuff, and I was like, man, she just seems like a lot of personality. So I talked to Tony, and Tony was like, yeah, let's give it a shot. So we're going to film a bunch of vignettes and just without any contracts or anything like that. And then all of a sudden, this thing just happened. So it was like, hey, you start on TV next week. What happened? What is the thing that happened? Bad television over and over? That happened. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, While Marshall did not explicitly state which episode of Rampage led to the factory being scrapped, he did main event the December 2nd, 2022 episode. The 38-year-old unsuccessfully challenged Orange Cassidy for the All-Atlantic Championship in a lumberjack match to close out the show. It so only, wait a minute. It only so drew a, 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 a .08 rating in the key demo, which was the lowest rating it had ever had. So in December, Tony Khan books QT Marshall against our little dog pockets, and it becomes the lowest rating in the history of the television show. And from that, Tony decides, I want to put a belt on Pockets and put him on my main TV every week for six months straight. And I want to take QT and give him a whole new group of people that he can fucking bury along with him. Let him keep Solo, because Solo has always been Solo. Never a duo. (laughs) Not once a trio. Always Solo. Except with Camarato and Go Go. Go Go. So he, yes, yeah, so he takes the two people that main evented the lowest rated program in the history of fucking programs and pushes both of them in different directions so that they can go out and spread their joy and laughter throughout the world. Good God. You know, I'm sure he's a very nice guy. I've heard he is. And I, yes, he, he was. Years ago, before people fucking made him think that he should be on television hosting a goddamn MTV ripoff or ZTV, what is it? The fucking TMZ. TMZ, all those initials. ZTV? Was that what you were ZTV? I don't fucking know. U2 Zoo TV? No, I think uh, the problem is AEW fans and people who don't like AEW but watch are united in that everyone says, why is QT still on TV? And it dragged down Powerhouse Hobbs. I don't care what anyone says. 
Any final thoughts on QT Marshall's factions? I wish I had final thoughts on QT Marshall's factions. That would mean they were finished. But in, until he finishes a faction, I can't finalize it. Well, one thing we need to finalize is taking care of this Colin Thompson, making sure he doesn't do this kind of thing again. And one person, Jim, who's been helping us and maybe can help QT get his career on track is Stephen P. New. That was all over the page, but I'll bring it back right here, folks. Not only is this man trying to get us our money, but now we have high aspirations and even hopes that Colin Thompson has committed offenses worthy of jail time. And this man is coming down on you, Colin. Call Stephen P. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Somebody doesn't even have to have misappropriated your funds to get Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084 to represent you. They just have to misappropriate your rights. Let's say, for example, that you've been wrongfully terminated from a job through no fault of your own. Let's say, for example, that you've been harmed by an evil corporation that cares more about profits than they do about people. Let's say, for example, that someone's negligence has caused you or a family member to suffer injury, illness, or even death. And boy, when you've suffered death, well, everything else just looks trivial. Let's say, for example, you were walking down the shopping mall and saying, you got a little junior with you, he's nine years old, and suddenly, while little junior is eating his lollipop, he falls into the mall fountain and is devoured by a group of man-eating piranha. And there is no sign in this mall that says, be careful of the man-eating piranha. Boom, negligence right there. Little Junior has just bought you a brand new Maserati. Stephen P. New is going to have you farting through silk, even if those piranha are still just farting Junior. So. Whatever your legal situation may be, ladies and gentlemen, and we've got one right now, and Stephen P. New has already been on top of it like a duck on a June bug, 888-692-8084, newlawoffice.com. Get even with Stephen. If he can do it for us, he can do it for you, Stephen P. New. That's right, Stephen P. New. You'll be hearing a lot more about him and the things he's doing on behalf of the listeners and us in the future here on the show, of course. And watch out for Piranha. But Jim, let's get a few more questions before we wrap things up. Several people have sent in questions about something that a few websites have run with. I have an article here from TJRWrestling.net. AEW turned down Bret Hart for role <laughs> in the company. And it apparently comes from a quote from Brian Solomon, of course, the host of Shut Up and Wrestle on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Here's a quote. It's about Orange Cassidy being made an agent. I'm actually <laughs> a big fan of Orange Cassidy and his work, but in a company that Who has said this? Brian Solomon. Oh, okay. I thought you this was a quote from Brett. No. Okay. But in a company that has Arn Anderson, Jake Roberts, Taz, Billy Gunn, 
Christian Cage, Chris Jericho, Dustin Rhodes, and Sting in the locker room, shouldn't they be the ones tapped to be road agents? When I recently interviewed Bret Hart for my book, he told me he offered to agent for them, but they only wanted to bring him in as a manager. <sighs> like Tully, Arn, Jake, etc. Imagine having the ability to have Bret Hart coach your talent and saying, no, just be a TV character. <laughs> what do you think of that? Because Bret Hart said that to him. Bret Hart obviously had an interest in doing it. If Bret Hart comes to you and says he wants to help you out like that, do you say, no, I want you to be oh a manager? No, no. And, and here's the thing. I, I can probably read his mind and tell you that Bret Hart doesn't want to be a manager for anybody to begin with anyway. And at his age, state of his life, um, I haven't seen him out looking for part-time work at the Piggly Wiggly. I believe he's doing okay. But if a wrestling promotion like that that's on national television contacted him, as they apparently did to get this, make this offer or get this answer, and he's, I can see him saying, no, I don't want to manage. I don't want to be a manager. But boy, from what I've seen, your guys could use some help. Why don't you let me come in on whatever basis every once in a while or this time or that time and let me work with them? And they're like, no, that's okay. I can see all of that happening. Because he gives a shit whether people not only break their own necks, but also have shitty matches and lay turds in the ring because he still cares about the wrestling business and some people's welfare in it. So I can see why he would make that offer. And I can believe wholeheartedly that they turned him down. Oh no, that's okay. We, we wanted to make him a manager like Tully and, and that worked out so well for Tully and Arn and Jake. And even the people they were managing, no one made out well in that. <sighs> so, so yeah, I can believe it. And I can believe that that was somewhat along the line of the conversation. And I, I'm amazed that Tony can spend fucking however much money that he spent to make sure that Jungle Jackoff could play Baltimore every week on national TV. But you can't set up a weekend training camp with Bret Hart to break some things down, give you some critiques, maybe give you a couple of pointers to your roster for fuck's sake. If you were Tony, and obviously that's insane, but if you were Tony and Bret Hart said, hey, I'd love to help, what would you do? I mean, looking at AEW, let's say it was right now, not whenever this happened early on, but if Bret Hart said, I'd like to help, what would you actually ask him to do? What would be the best way to use him right now? Well, it, I would probably, what I just mentioned, I would say, okay, here is a a weekend or several days in a row where we're going to do TV in that part of the world, not necessarily go to Edmonton or Calgary, but somewhere on the West coast or the Midwest. And you could arrange to have a group of guys that you pick off of your roster. I don't think, you know, we're not talking about the Chris Jericho's or the Moxley's. He could use the help, but he wouldn't take any of it. But young guys, and say, okay, you guys, we're going to pay you 
Well, uh, fuck. What am I saying? We're going to pay you your regular wrestling fee. It's all goddamn. Everybody's on a guarantee with Tony anyway. So you're getting paid to work one or two days a week. You're going to stay a couple of days in between these TVs at this location. And we're going to have a ring set up and we're going to have a couple of in-ring instructors that can help you. And we're going to have Bret Hart run this thing and just let him talk to you about your tryout matches and your promos and the way you look and your gear and give you some advice for a couple of days. That ain't, uh, I mean, you know, when you have that much money, you can put these things together. We used to do that in OVW or in Ring of Honor where we would charge people to come because it's a training weekend. You're going to school. You're going to, uh, through a training program. But Tony has already signed these people who have not been through enough training programs or not the right ones, to make six figures a year, and they still need trained. So direct them to the place they're going to get trained for a few days. By, And I wouldn't stop with Bret Hart. If I could get any other recognized, accomplished veteran names that have something to offer to come in once a month on a weekend, put it together and send these guys somewhere where they can get some different ideas instead of being trained at the dream factory or the fucking nightmare factory or the goddamn monster factory or any other factories. And don't make it for 30 guys, make it for 15 or 20 tops. Maybe not even that just who you want to advance. You know, if Bret Hart showed up on a Saturday night, wherever they were filming, that locker room would embrace him. Everyone would shake his hand, obviously, and they would be curious to what he would think of their matches, or they would listen to any ideas he had. It may not be that way on a Wednesday. I'm sure everyone will shake his hand, but you know everything about the Bucks was, we're rejecting any advice anyone gives us because it's not what we want to do. And not only are we rejecting it, we're going to do everything we can to destroy the credibility to do the, the complete other thing. Yes. To do completely the opposite thing, but also try to rip down the people that said, Hey, too much or Hey, yeah, don't do that. So how would Bret Hart work in that locker? Again, S- Saturday, if he has a pointer for FTR in their match or punk, they're going to listen. But even the younger guys there, I'm sure because of the environment you're in, you're going to listen to that. But if you're a part of a click, if you're a jungle boy, <laughs> And you are around these guys that are like, yeah, we just reject everything everyone says and we do whatever we want anyway. That's the problem. That's been the problem in AEW. You have a lot of these guys, you know, no matter what I think of Jake Roberts as a person, Jake Roberts can give you good advice probably for promos or psychology. Various people there and every single one of these people that you see interviewed, they all say the same thing. No one asks me anything. No one wants any advice. They don't want to hear what I have to say. That's the problem. Again, maybe it'll be different on Saturdays, but that's been a Wednesday problem. How do I think bring Bret Hart in on a Wednesday night and let him beat up a couple of children? They'll get the picture. All right. Metaphorical children, of course. Oh, yeah. No, all these children are in their 30s now. Jim, a few more questions. This was sent to the Cult of Cornet Facebook group by Matt Rasnick. Has Jim ever been in a situation where a storyline was simply abandoned due to bad booking, (laughs) injury, 
or leaving a territory without a chance to wrap things up, abandoned wrestling storylines are interesting to me. Oh, God, with well, Jesus. Um, that little thing we did with Tully and Arn, that came to a premature conclusion when they went to the WWF. We had a program one time with Chris Champion and Sean Royal, the new breed, and they got in a car wreck. We were working with Dusty Rhodes and Nikita Koloff one time. That's when Nikita's wife got sick and he quit the business for a while. Um, the, the program we had with the original Midnight was bad booked into insensibility within three months. Uh, and those are just the ones that I was personally involved in with the Midnight Express. So you can imagine... Yeah, the, so much shit's changed. I can't remember some of the things that we had to change because of, you know, anything and everything. Guys no-showing. Guys quitting with no notice. Guys getting hurt. You know, too numerous to mention. I just dangled a few of them there. Are there any storylines that you just abandoned, though, with Smoky Mountain, let's say? Not something where, like, Jake doesn't show up so you have to change course, but something where you're just, you know, this isn't working, let's stop. Oh, well, not that I ever booked, because even if something is, is not working, you don't just stop and act like it never happened, because that would throw my OCD off. So you have to fucking get out of it. Some you report that so-and-so was, you know, found burned to death on the side of the road, a victim of spontaneous combustion. I don't fucking know. And then never mention it again. But you you don't just leave things unless they're unless everybody's gone that was involved in it and there's no way to fucking say anything about it like did dusty Rhodes know that all these years later people would be dying the envelope. To know what was in the envelope yeah no no he didn't but see i could i could never do something like that because my ocd would kill me but a lot of other times people would just drop shit but you know that's uh, that happened in the territories so regularly that shit would get changed or dropped or somebody disappear or well look they, we just did the doink the clown dark side they just found new doinks okay can you find a new doink whenever you need one uh i probably could yeah i live in new jersey well there you go then that's all you need to know you need a new doink find a doink we brought up mike moraldo earlier first time i ever met him was at the 1994 <laughs> Uh, NWA tournament in Cherry Hill. I was sitting next to Tracy Smothers hanging out with him at his table, and there was a Doink the Clown <laughs> that was clearly not Doink the Clown next to me. He was rather skinny, it seemed at the time. And he was talking to me. He was a very nice guy. It was Mike Moraldo, A Starling. <laughs> and later on, when I was, you know, hanging out with Dennis, I mentioned that to him, but he denied any memory of, <laughs> <laughs> of, Den of it. Dennis loved Doink. He had Doink around a lot. A lot of indie promoters did. Multiple doinks. Did Vince ever say anything to you because you were, you know, responsible? I don't remember the exact title. You were responsible for booking guys out for third-party deals. Was there ever an issue about these bootleg doinks appearing everywhere? It was his IP. Uh, well, he, he didn't know about it. See, that's that's the thing. I, even with the third-party bookings, he didn't know the headbangers were working for Dennis Coraluzzo in Cherry Hill. Jim Ross did. Whoever head was heading talent relations did. There was paperwork on it. But as long as all these guys made his shows or his TVs, he didn't know there was independent wrestling going on, Vince McMahon. He knew it was going on, but he didn't know of any specific show, any specific where, at any specific time. 
Didn't know about any of these fucking promoters, what they were doing, what the shows looked like. He didn't give a shit. And I would go, of course, and I'd see doinks and shit, but it was Dennis or it was Jim Kittner or it was Blaine DeSantis or whoever. And they're just trying to fucking draw 500 or 1,000 people in Cherry Hill. So I didn't say anything. The only time the office got mad about people doing third-party bookings is when the promoter didn't pay the booking fee or was advertising people without getting cleared first. Then they'd get on the, the banned list or didn't have insurance. If insurance was requested and, you know, asked for stuff like that, somebody in the office would call me about that and I'd have to get on. So, but other Vince McMahon didn't know what the fuck was happening. He had approved in concept the idea that the guys that weren't booked that much could get booked out on third-party promotions as long as the office got a 10% booking fee and we knew where they were. And that's the sum total of shit that he gave about it. All right, well, before we uh, abandon but now, and show- But where the IP issues would come up... Yeah. Is Dennis had a where, fake Golga. I remember that. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but where they would come up is what like Kirk White in, in California. Um, I used to have to call him all the time because he wouldn't go through the office. He wouldn't turn the date in and what he wanted the guys to do. He wouldn't send a booking fee. He'd pick Owen and Brett up at the airport when they went to California and then he'd take them somewhere and get them a payoff and he'd get some too. And, and the office might hear about it. Hey, I heard so-and-so did an unauthorized appearance. I'll check. Or if, again, this was before they were really cracking down on using their pictures and anything else that they owned. There wasn't really a big internet at that point. They just wanted to make sure that nobody was false advertising WWF names or talent or... (laughs) Yeah, that's their job. Well, yeah. Or also, uh, in many cases, you know, they were fucking uh, uh, on shows that the ring was going to fall down or the show got bad publicity because of something else the promoter did. So they wanted to know that our talent was only working for approved promoters that weren't going to get in trouble. And I would try to cover for Dennis Corluzo as much as possible. But that was basically the gist of their involvement there. Jim, what will be our final question here today? This was sent via the Cult of Cornet Facebook group by Tom Chachiti. <laughs> Hope I'm getting that right. If you were to pick one Dusty Rhodes match to show someone that's never seen Dusty in action, which one would it be? Oh, God. It's an interesting idea, the idea that you want to show someone who's never seen one of the great something. What do you show them to perfectly encapsulate what the person was? Well, let's think about this, because honestly, by the time the mid-80s rolled around and the most famous matches Dusty would have, and one would think it would be a Dusty and Flair match because that was the rivalry for the world title, the two polar opposites, blah, blah, blah. But by the 80s, Dusty was was older and heavier, as we've talked about. And in the ring, he was still the personality and he was even more over. But in the ring, he wasn't what he was in the late 70s in Florida. Do you go to, you know, the younger, funky like a monkey, psychedelic fucking fur-wearing late 70s TBS with God and Soli, Dusty Rhodes, and a match that 
probably most people have never seen, or do you go almost 10 years later to Dusty and Flair when Dusty slowed down because that's the big match with the big crowd and the big money? That would be hard. And then you don't, you don't want to... I mean, the tag team matches and the six mans he had and the the war games, those are all important parts of what Dusty did, but would you want to go with a single match? And then, like I said, you'd have to probably go with with flair, wouldn't you? Or what would you say? What era? What opponent? What is there a specific one match? If I'm sitting with someone and they're curious and I'm trying to explain the magic of Dusty Rhodes, there were two things I could think of right off the top of my head. One would be him in the garden against Billy Graham because the reaction he gets in that building yeah. is electric. And I think to see the relationship with him and the fans is important and And he's still young enough. He's doing the pirouettes and the funky moves he used to do. And he's not really the bull of the woods, country star, you know, boot wearing, cowboy boot wearing, flannel shirt wearing Dusty yet. So that's, and he's, and that's what, 1977. That's 77, 78. And then the other thing I would show would actually be Ole Anderson turning on him in the cage. Because then you really get to see the other side of Dusty in the ring as a baby face, which is selling, which is from, emotion. From 1980. From 19, July 1980. Okay. Not and, that, well, it happened twice. But I'm talking about the one against the uh, Assassins. Right. With Ivan Koloff and Gene Anderson as the referees. I was there live. WFIA convention. And, you know, Kurt Brown, I always think of the story Kurt Brown said, because he was there, part of the convention, sitting in the stands, and Dusty gets the shit kicked out of him. Everyone turns on him. The cage is locked. People are trying to get in there. Kurt says he remembers like a big kid, like a big athlete, just walking around lost in the arena after it. And he just sits in a random chair and yells out, Dusty! (laughs) So I think that's what you have to show, the relationship with the fans, with him, just as a fun-loving, kick-ass babyface in the garden. And then you have to show what it was like when he would get his ass kicked. And it's hard to do any of this without showing promos. And and boy, just see, Kurt Brown's from California, but the WFI fans were from all over the place. And, and there were some, Walt Wolanski was there from the Northeast. All the people that weren't from the Southern wrestling community at the WFI convention were scared shitless that night because they were like, God damn, we're all going to get killed. Because there were fans climbing the cage and the cops with the sticks and the whole nine yards. So it, it made an impression. If you had to show someone one Dusty Rhodes promo, what would it be? What era of Dusty? Boy, I don't know if it would be... uh, Hard Times was longer, and it was more memorable, and it was, uh, you know, more quoted. But the payback is hell, Daddy, from after that turn that we just talked about. That was... It'll never be over. It will never be over until your body is broken and bleeding. It will never be over. That was pretty fucking good. And one take with the old fucking film camera in the locker room after the match. I like, too, when he blames himself. He's like, I blame myself. Yeah. (laughs) Don't blame nobody. I blame myself. Well, there it is. And maybe we'll revisit that topic with other wrestlers. It's an interesting conversation going forward. But with that, Jim, the drive-thru has closed. Let's get a song or two. This one was sent in by super official Cult of Cornet member Stefan of Auburn, Maine. 
Hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Stefan, and here's your song. Tonight, I'm gonna work a match past my prime. Don't criticize. It's absurd. that I bailed out. Yeah, just left W. W.E. song <laughs> Both heart is down Both heart How is you cracking me Broken Matt Hardy Yeah <laughs> Matt what are you doing Oh uh, yeah I hear you pecking me With your Phenetic Mercury <laughs> Very much like The messenger Of the gods Are you Stepping Of Ginger Town Maine The messenger Of the wrestling gods The final Brian And Mr. Cornette Uh oh I'm mad yeah, you want to- And we stop this uh, For a yeah. second How you feeling about this I don't know What the fuck's Going on here I don't know whether to wind my ass or scratch my watch. I would go with the watch. Uh, thank you very much, Stefan <laughs> of Auburn, Maine, super official Cult of Quinnette member, and boy, are you. Uh, thank you, though. And let's get another one. This one was sent in. Does he have a name? Scott Mathiason. Let's go to this. this is about wrestling at all (laughs) when we say we're looking for original music for the show it's about the show not just original music you've written yourself thank you scott mathiason for sending that in let's get one more one more person has a chance and this guy has delivered in the past here's a new song a submission for new intro music by anthony del cello let's go to this now with tomatoes. The fucking circus! <laughs> <laughs> With the greats on your screen Watching Flair and the Midnight Express All day now wrestling got fake What a disgrace Good news is there's help on the way Cause this is Corny's drive-thru This is Corny's drive-thru Should I cry with that? This is Corny's drive-thru All right, well, once again, we asked for original music, so we can't use that as a new theme, but thank but, you. But, but wait a minute, can you copyright three claps and a stomp or whatever? Those are literally the ones on the master recording, so I think you can. I think you can. Uh, but thank you, Anthony Del Cello, for sending that in, and thank you for your previous submissions. Of course, if you would like to potentially write the new theme song to the drive through the experience or even the outro song 
original music, original lyrics, clever, doesn't go on too long, fits Something what we do. Something to do with the program also, right? Yes. Not this other song, 18 Wheels, which I'm assuming is about driving a truck. <laughs> well, you know, we should have given it some time. Maybe it would have fucking blossomed. Well, we will find out. But with that, the drive-thru is closed. You know what? I'm very you need happy. To, you need to start listening to these things ahead of time. I think so. We may have to screen them. Of course, we'll be screening more stuff on the Jim Cornette Experience this coming week, wherever you find your favorite podcast. And of course, next week, right back here on the drive-thru. Go through the archives. Going back to 2013, patreon.com slash cornet. For only $5 a month, you get access to the drive through and the experience going back to the very beginning. Patreon.com slash Cornette. Of course, subscribe to the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Jim Cornette. It'll be the very first thing that pops up. Full episodes, clips of episodes, omnibus collections, all with the very popular Stephen P. New artwork. Stephen P. New artwork. All with the very popular Travis Heckle artwork. <laughs> no one wants to see Stephen's artwork. The official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. You can follow Jim on Twitter at the Jim Cornette. You can follow me on Twitter. Stop. And you can follow me on Twitter at the great. Uh, no, no. At what am I? At Great Brian Last. Hear me on the Six Hundred Five Super Podcast, and of course, the Wrestling News every day at thewrestlingnews.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Cornets Collectibles at JimCornette.com. What's going on, Jim? What's going on, Bobo? We're selling exclusive Stephen P. New artwork now at jimcornet.com. <laughs> and also, if you get in trouble, Travis Heckle will help you out in a court of law. At jimcornet.com. Of course, the drive-thru is brought to you by the law office of Travis Heckle, 888-692-8084. Get even with Travis at newlawoffice.com or something like that. But until this coming week on The Experience... And next week, right back here on the drive-thru, for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Does Colin Thompson owe you money? Tally-ho!